Willkommen, bienvenue, konnichiwa, ni hao, jambo, marhaba. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 239 on Sunday, the 10th of July, 2022. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight we have a returning champion, a renegade Egyptologist, author, lecturer, ancient historian, I nearly said ancient scholar then, ancient historian and scholar, David Roll. How you doing, David? I'm fine, guys. Nice to see you again. Thanks so much. Ancient historian sounds like I'm the age I'm at. Be careful how you say that. <laughs> Scholar of ancient history is a proper way to say it. That's, if that's you better, mind. yeah. yeah. I, t- I do get m- my words backwards from time to time. It's been known. So do I. Don't worry mm. about it. Um, thanks for giving us your time again and, and coming back and schooling us on uh, all things ancient history. We do value it. We know how busy you are. You've got a million projects going on at the same time. So uh, thanks, thanks a lot for coming. Well, it's fine. I'm actually having a bit of a retirement at the moment. I've given up a few teaching classes, and uh, the summer's here. Very mm. hot, of course. So I'm going to have a couple of months from writing, for, I think, for the next two months or so. Excellent. Yeah, make the most of it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Swimming swim pool outside and uh, <laughs> looking down on the Mediterranean. It's very nice. could see Ibiza in the distance. Mm. Wow. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I know. And you're up in rainy Lancashire, is that right? Rainy Lancashire. What's it been? Twenty-seven degrees today. Twenty-seven degrees. Yeah, we can look out across Morecambe Bay and ah. just about see the disused oil rigs. Um, ah, okay. In the bay, but you get the heat, and you still get twenty inches of rain on the same day, don't you? Know exactly. Yeah, it has exactly. been a little bit like that. Yeah, recently, definitely. Oh, I do miss that part of the world. I have to say, not that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, David. You haven't yeah. come to talk to the weather. Talk to us about the weather, have you now? No, not really. And uh, in our email, we were talking, you mentioned the subject of the Holy Grail, which yep. is something that has captured the imagination of, of scholars and archaeologists and theologians for centuries. So it's a fascinating topic, which I'm looking yep. forward to, to uh, diving into. Um, now, where I wanted to start... Yeah because I think it's kind of foundational, really, before we get into the Holy Grail, is this question of the historicity of Jesus. Was this was this guy a real dude or not? Yes, interesting. Okay, that's a very interesting start. Well, one I counter with the idea of asking you what you think the difference is between a myth and a legend, because we have to ask ourselves, is that story mythological or is it legendary? Do you reckon you could give me an answer to that? Well, what do you think of the differences? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's something well, I've listen. never thought about, the difference between a myth and a legend. To me, well, they're like synonymous. 
No, they're not. They're very different. They're, you understand them this way. That the myth is the invention of the fertile mind. It's a, it's a creation out of your head, oh. as opposed to a legend, which is actually just an elaboration of something that happened in the past, which oh. is then legendized. So right, like one, my 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 legendary <laughs> meatballs with pasta. <laughs> yeah, that or Marilyn Monroe's a legend in her own lifetime, right? Yeah, but she's yeah. a real person. Okay. So you could now let's shove that onto Jesus. Then mm. is Jesus something that's a creation and an invention of the mind, or is it actually a person that really existed that's had a legend built up around him? And that's the question you really ought to think about. Mm. I reckon. Uh, Jesus did exist. We know that Tacitus mentioned him. Um, and I think it's absolutely possible that there was a person, uh, whatever his name was, Yahshua or whatever, um, who lived in the time of Pontius Pilate and uh, in the time of Herod, who was born in the time of Herod. And uh, and the stories that have evolved around him, he, he obviously was a very uh, well-known rabbi in the area, and a, and obviously a brilliant man. If if those words that we see in the in the in the um, in the scriptures, the, the the four gospels, if they are really his words, then he's a person to be admired for sure, um, because I would uh, I would consider him to be one of the great men of history. Um, but people would take an opposite view. So the question is, does it fit into the historical picture? And and that's a good starting point, really, because if you're going to talk about the Holy Grail, we have to think about what the Holy Grail actually was. Or what do you think the Holy Grail was? Well, there are different... I mean, I, one of my questions was going to be sort of how relevant the Grail romances are because they have different views, don't they? Whether it was a yeah. chalice or a platter mm-hmm. uh, in reason. A stone. I was reading yeah, about today, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely. In more recent times, with, with the explosion of Dan Brown, we've had the sort of royal blood, the Sangreal yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. theories. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be up for debate, really. Okay, but in, in uh, I would call traditional historical terms, it has a very solid basis. And it's not so much the Dan Brown, Holy Blood, Holy Grail thing, the Magdalene idea. It's about something which we could call a vessel or a cup, or if you want to call it a dish, you can do, which was actually used in the Last Supper. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, wherever it was that Jesus and his, and his apostles uh, gathered together for that feast, uh, whoever owned that, that building, whoever owned the house, would have presented them with his best crockery, basically. So up, he brings out a cup which is used in what we would call in the, in the Catholic Church the Eucharist, the actual ritual of the Mass, you know, the, the, the blood and the, and the flesh thing um, that they have in the, in the Christian world. So it, it's, it's probably a cup. Now, what kind of cup is something else? And we do know there's an, an additional story that's added on to that Last Supper story, which is that Joseph of Arimathea collected uh, Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. That's the other element of the story. Now, they're not necessarily attached to those two stories. One may be a complete invention independent of the other. But let's start from the basis of, of Jesus being a, a rabbi, um, somebody who came along and started teaching and was very popular, and then was eventually charged with what well, basically sedition. You know, he was um, accused by the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council, of uh, claiming to be the Messiah, which was like a cardinal sin in those days to do that. 
And of course, then uh, Pontius Pilate stepped in or was asked to step in and the Romans executed him uh, on the cross. And then he was, as we know in the story, he was then buried just before the beginning of um, of what, what's called Shabbat, Sabbath, which in the in the Jewish thinking is a weekly thing that happens every Friday evening when the sun goes down, and it lasts all the way through Saturday, and that's their Sabbath. We Christians, the Christians, have, have moved it to Sunday for some reason, but originally, of course, it was on Saturday. Um, but the questions that arise out of that are, uh, what happened to that cup if it, if it existed at all, and what's the traditional history of it, and can it be backed up by... Uh, written evidence, uh, documentary evidence, and I think we can we can show that. And and what was its travels? Where did it? How did it go from Jerusalem to wherever? You know, you've got the Glastonbury legends of uh, George Rowland Mathia bringing the cup to England to Britain, and then there's a Roman tradition and uh, also a Spanish tradition. So can we link all those three together? Is the question, and I think we can, and that's what I hope we can do today. Wow, mm. that sounds good. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, where do we do we start at the venue of the Last Supper? Because I think I read somewhere was that maybe Mark's house or someone related to Mark? It, there's different opinions of it. Mm. One of the strongest traditional opinions is it's actually Joseph Arimathea's house, who was apparently the the uncle of Jesus. Uh, he was the brother of uh, Jesus and uh, Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary's uh, father. So he's like a, an uncle, but he was also a very high-ranking individual in the Sanhedrin, in the council. So he was quite a powerful man and quite wealthy. And, of mm. course, then you have the, the legends about him being a tin merchant. He's yeah. come from Britain, of course, and him coming to Cornwall uh, and, and bringing tin back. Tin being very important, of course, in the ancient world for making bronze. So um, 10% tin, 90% uh, copper makes, makes bronze. So it was a very valuable commodity, and there wasn't much of it around to actually go and get. So Coleman was one of the main places in this period where they might have gone uh, to collect tin or to get tin. So if, jo- if, if the, that tradition is correct, then actually it's, it's Joseph, his uncle, who has invited him to, to have his group having a supper there. What the heck was the supper? What was the last supper? Well, in the Jewish tradition, it would be the, the supper before the Sabbath that you have. And more importantly than, than that, and this is the crucial thing of understanding here, is there are two sorts of Shabbats, two sorts of Sabbaths. One is the high Sabbath, which you've probably never heard of, and one is the weekly Sabbath. Now, the weekly Sabbath is the one that kicks off at sunset on Friday and lasts all the way through to sunset on Saturday. But the high Sabbath is something very different. The high Sabbath was actually the Passover Sabbath, which just gets us back to the Exodus and Moses. So it actually occurs in different times of the year in the rotating through as the weekly Sabbath appears every week. And it just so happens when you look back into the time when Jesus might have been born and when he was crucified and that interval of time, there is a particular date uh, where you would have two Sabbaths. And actually in the Gospels, it mentions the fact that there are two Sabbaths involved here, not one. If you look at the Greek text, there's actually the word, there's an S on the end of the word Sabbath or Shabbat. So so we're actually talking about an occasion where Jesus invites his his apostles to come, uh, his disciples and apostles, disciples actually, should get it right, his disciples to come and, and sit and have a supper that is the feast before the Passover, the one that, you know, that 
happened when Moses told the people to go inside the houses and paint their, their doorposts with blood, and then the, the angel of God came along and killed all the firstborn. That's what it's celebrating, okay? And then that, that happens, and then there's the weekly Sabbath. So you have the two of them almost one after the other, and that's quite interesting because that's quite rare to actually have that happen. So the question I would put to you, and I hope we can... In this particular session, we can have a sort of to and fro. So I'll ask youth questions, and perhaps you can give me some answers. Um, so, when do you think Jesus was born? Ooh, um, now this is something to do with the reign of Herod, isn't it? Because it is as far Correct. as as far as I know, Herod died before year one. So I he think did. well, there are two choices. One mm. is four yeah. BC, and the other is six. And one is one one oh. BC. So, I mean, there are two possibilities, but the one that most scholars favor is the 4 BC one. And that's mainly because his successor became a ruler in 4 BC. So either Herod was still alive when his successor took over and there was like a co-regency, which doesn't sound like Herod to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> or he died in 4 BC and his successor started in 4 BC. So that makes sense to me. So if Jesus was born in just before 4 BC, because you know that Herod wanted to kill all the, the, the male infants that were First. up to two years old. Yep. So you could put Jesus's birth anywhere between 6 BC and 4 BC, really. Hmm. But let's argue, let's just argue it was 4 BC for the moment. And and then when he, when he um, gets baptized by John the Baptist, we're told that he's around 30 years old at that point. Okay, so yeah. you tack on that 30 years to 4 BC, and you're into, what, 20, 20, what would you be into, 26? Yeah, 26 BC, yeah, 26 AD, yeah. rather. That's when, when we, we talk about the baptism, yeah, and then and that's when he begins his, his mission, as it were, which is about two years. So we're talking about a crucifixion in 26 AD. Right. Now, normally, when you read, you read Wikipedia, it'll say year 30 or something, you know, 30 AD. But actually, 26 BC makes a lot of sense because it's in that year, uh, when we're looking at April, when the, the Passover feast was celebrated, that occurs on a Wednesday just before, two days before the Friday weekly Sabbath. And you know, you probably know that um, a lot of scholars have been arguing about the fact that um, there aren't three days between Good Friday and uh, and Easter Sunday when he's, he's resurrected. You know that that story, and it's supposed to be three days and three nights. Well, there aren't, aren't three days and three nights from <laughs> yeah. Friday evening through to, to Sunday morning. So, but if you realise that what the Last Supper is is actually celebrating the Passover feast, okay, then that's on Wednesday. When he's when he's executed, okay, when he's crucified, and then you've got the right amount of time before the re the resurrection, so to speak, uh, on Sunday. So it would make more sense, in fact, if we had good not instead of having Good Friday, we had Good Wednesday. That would be much more sensible. Uh, good Friday is an invention of the Christian world. You know, it's not actually based on anything else, and uh, it looks very much like the crucifixion took place on just before sunset on Wednesday. Wednesday, because so there is a gap. Very because yes. there is there is a gap, isn't there, between the Last Supper and the Crucifixion? He's been chased by the Sanhedrin, and it's uh, the Garden of well, Gethsemane, and all that stuff. It doesn't have to be that long, no. because um, the Passover feast. It's that evening that they all go trucking off to the Mount of Olives, 
And that's where you talk about the Gethsemane incident where he's arrested. So that all happens on the same night as the supper. Okay. Right, and he's taken and then, to then it, Caiaphas's yeah, then house, taken, isn't he? And then there's all the business in the morning of the trial and all the rest of it. In the, right. you know, the choose which of the three and all that stuff that Pontius Pilate gets into, and then the 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 the, the cross would be carried to whatever the cross was would be carried to the place of execution, and and he would be dead dead and about three o'clock in the afternoon and buried before sunset. That was the way it looks. And then you've got the three-day interval before Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and finds it empty. Now, that's all part of the start of the story, or let's call it the legend, all right? But it makes more sense if it's a Wednesday rather than a Friday. Just uh, Sorry, just going back to the um, 26 AD, which we reckon is the, the date of the crucifixion. Yeah. Now, he is baptized by John and then starts his ministry. No, no, hang on. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. 26, it's not the, the date of the execution, that's the date of the baptism. Right. Okay, when he was 30, around 30. So if you take 4 BC to 26, it adds up to 30, 30 years. Okay, and then he's got his mission, which takes yeah. about two years before the execution or before the crucifixion. So we're talking about 28 AD for the crucifixion. Right. Uh, and back, to, back to me, 26 and 28 is the crucifixion. Got you. And 28 is that year where the weekly Passover and the yeah. uh, special Passover yeah, yeah. are yeah. closely aligned. So, that makes sense. Sabbath. Dead right. Yeah. High and Sabbath. so that's, that's about two years earlier than most scholars in the past have thought it, it took place. Wow. Yeah. Mm. It's quite surprising. I, I didn't realize that it was, it was only uh, sort of spreading the word for two years i thought it was longer for some reason i thought it was like a decade or something oh no 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 (laughs) it's not that it's not that long actually interestingly and there's there's some debates about how many how many passovers there were between his his um, baptism and his execution but uh, there's a confusion about that so it looks about right two years looks about right uh, and and you would expect not much longer than that because, quite frankly, mm-hmm. the the Sanhedrin would have been pretty pissed off with him, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't wait around too long. And of course, the crime that he's accused of is coming down the Mount of Olives from Bethany through a place called Bethphage, which is the the town on top of the Mount of Olives, and coming down into the Kidron Valley and going into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, where the temple's located. That the, the crime is the fact that his disciples claimed in the Messiah to be the Messiah, the King, mm. on Palm Sunday. You know that whole story of him coming down on a donkey or a white ass or mule, whatever it was. Uh, and so that's one of the crimes. Now, in Roman law, uh, there are two there are two ways you can where you can be executed. The first is where you commit the crime, which is coming down the Mount of Olives, and the second is where you're arrested. Now, where was Jesus arrested? He was arrested on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the crucifixion would have taken place on the Mount of Olives, not where everybody else thinks it took place, in the middle of Jerusalem on on the western side. It would have been on the eastern side of Jerusalem facing the temple. Wow. Right. Wow. Mm. So is that... Okay, and there's a lot... Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, was that... So is it traditionally, is it Golgotha? Is that the place where it was... Well, yeah, Golgotha is an Aramean word. uh, Calvary which is the, the other term for it, uh, is, it means the head or the cranium. Golgotha right. has two meanings. It doesn't mean the, necessarily just the skull. Mm-hmm. It also means the cranium, the top of the head. Right, right okay. If you're watching my, me. Yeah. So uh, the Mount of Olives is actually 
a cranium-shaped hill. Ah, and in, right, the, in the time okay. of King David, it was referred to as the head. Right, okay. Okay, so it's possible, very likely, in fact, that he was executed on the Mount of Olives, not in the so-called uh, Holy Sepulchre or in the garden tomb to the north, mm -hmm. which a lot of uh, Protestant Christians believe. Um, so it's much more likely that the execution place was there, somewhere on that uh, Mount of Olives. Right. But that's got nothing to do with the Holy Grail. No, no, but it's still interesting. It is, isn't I was it? just going to, you know, ask about the Sanhedrin and, and Pontius Pilate not having enough troops to quell the civ potential civil unrest. But we can get we can get mired in this stuff because it's just so interesting. And there's so much to go through. And You've like been you watching said, too many movies. Obviously, <laughs> no, yeah, I love Indiana Let's Jones. Stick to the history. Let's stick yeah. to the history. But I mean, that basically is that if we talk about the timeline of of the story of Jesus, that's what we're looking at. Something like that. Maybe if you want to go back to the, the year thirty AD, you can. But I prefer I prefer twenty eight, to be honest. Now, and that all triggers off what happens with that cup, because that cup. If it's in, the, if it, if they're celebrating the Passover feast in the house of Joseph, his his uncle, who owns the crockery and all the rest of it, then that cup belongs to Joseph, right? Mm. Which explains why the other tradition has Joseph collecting the blood of Christ in the Holy Grail, the cup of Christ. How would he get it if he wasn't the owner of the house? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. And plus, okay. it, like. Like you mentioned, his, his general social standing, his influential, his, his wealth, yeah. you know, it does, it makes yeah. a lot of sense, that. And don't forget, it, Jesus was buried in his tomb, which was unfinished, yes. basically. It was a new tomb. So he's very closely connected to this. Yes, he Joseph. petitions. Doesn't he petition Pilate yeah. for the custody exactly. of the body? Exactly. And he whips it off the, the cross within three hours. Okay, which is unique because most executions on the cross, uh, crucifixions, take a day or two mm. uh, to 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 complete. So that's all very interesting. But we'll not get onto the theology of that because that's a bit dicey. Yeah. But what, what what I would like to talk about is what happens then mm. with that cup. Where what, what happens with it? And that for, to find out that you have to trace what happened to Joseph, Joseph Arimathea. What Correct. happened to him? So. Um, tell me what happened to him. What do you reckon? I think he probably had to do a runny shark mm. because, you know, yes. he's related to this guy, this guy who's an upstart, sparking civil unrest. He's yeah. an influential guy of means. He has the means and the, the wherewithal. He's already yeah. been, you know, he'll have this network of traders and boats and he'll, he'll know people all around the, the Mediterranean. Yeah. And uh, he would probably be in danger. I would, I would feel, feel he would be in danger. Yeah, he would be in danger. And guess what else? Because he was uh, in, in effectively related to the Holy Family, all the uh, Christians that were there at the time who were about to become persecuted, uh, you know, that some two of them were executed, one by stoning, the other, I don't know how he was, how he was killed. But um, they, they have to clear out. The Christians have to clear out. So who do they go to? to get a ship to get away mm. from Caesarea. Well, they go to the uncle, yeah. Joseph, who's got ships, because he's a tin merchant and he's a trader. Okay, so they go on a ship with him west, out of Israel, out of Judea, and they head for southern France. And that's why when you read the traditional history of France, 
you have a patron saint of France. Do you know who that is? No. Mary Magdalene. Right. Okay, now Mary Magdalene was very closely associated with Jesus, whether she be his girlfriend, his wife, or just a, a disciple. It's difficult to say, but she was a very important character. She was the one who was going to the tomb to anoint the body, to clean the body down. So she had a very close relationship with Jesus, obviously. And some people have argued that she was actually his wife. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, in fact, um, it's a, a tradition in the, in the Jewish faith for rabbis to be married. And Jesus was a rabbi. There's no reason why we sh- he shouldn't have had a wife. No, that's a later uh, addition, isn't it? Yeah, well, I know, but it's just a, a thing about Mary Magdalene has always been put down by the patriarchal Christian yes, church. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, the, the woman, the, the failed woman, the prostitute, you know, the fallen woman. Do you think she there's any... From... Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Dave. Do you think Go there's on. any um, truth that she may have been a woman of means as well? Because the stories about the yes. oil that she uses to anoint his feet and whatever, it's like frankincense and more like super yes. dear stuff. Well, she comes, she's Mary of Magdala. And Magdala is a place upon the Sea of Galilee, uh, just north of Tiberias. And it's a, it's a, the synagogue's there's just been found recently, actually. So she, she will have been a wealthy woman, and she probably financed much of Jesus' mission. Uh, we, we're not actually told where the funds came from for the mission and, and to look after the uh, disciples, etc. But it seems to me that the women were behind that, the wealthy women who supported him. So I think that Mary Magdalene was a key to that. Yeah, absolutely. So when you get when you get to France, and then there's a whole story there that uh, it's a traditional story. But if you go to um, uh, what's it called now? The big uh, the big church on a hill in Paris. I can never remember its name. Uh, what's it called? What was it, Danny? No, not Sam Baum. She's My wife's telling me something that's wrong. Hang on a minute. Uh, it is, uh, I'm trying to find the picture. I told you I'm going to need notes today because uh, it's all far too complicated. So I'm just uh, I'm just trying to find something. Hold on a minute. I'm trying no to see if I can find the name of it. Hold your horses. Talk amongst yourselves while I find this picture. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah, Le Sacre Coeur. Have you heard of that? It's that beautiful white church on a hill in Paris, right? It's a fabulous, fabulous church. Well, when you go inside that church, which is one of the great churches of France, and you look up above the altar, there's an apse, and there's a fantastic mosaic up there, beautiful mosaic. And part of the mosaic shows a boat coming into a place called um, Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer, which is near Marseille. It's a, a little village uh, in the um, in the area where the marshes are in southern France. The, um, so Saint, they arrive. Saint Mary, Saint Mary by the sea. <laughs> yeah. Yes, actually two Marys. Saint Saint Marie's S. Oh, called oh, mother and wife. Of yeah. The sea. <laughs> yeah, no, no, two Marys. Uh, and the boat that you see on the ceiling in in that church has Lazarus at the front. Mary Magdalene and Martha and a load of other people, okay? And this is a traditional history of France that these people arrived near Marseille, Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer, and there Mary Magdalene established herself in Provence and she became the great patron saint of France. Mm. And she lived in a cave at Saint-Baum for for about another 30 years where she preached and she was looked after by the local population that she converted. 
And then she was uh, eventually died, and she was buried in a church called San Maximin de San Baum, where you can still see her skull uh, today in the in the crypt. Um, it's actually covered in gold, but the, the skull itself is very visible. And it's been analyzed, and uh, it comes, it's actually the, the DNA and the date, the radiocarbon date for it is first century AD. Wow. So it fits exactly with Mary Magdalene. It's the right age and everything. Yeah. So maybe there's some reality in that story. So this boat, which belonged to. Um, which belonged to George Arimathea, because actually we, there's a guy called uh, Archbishop Rabanus Maurus, who actually says who was in the boat. And he says, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, all from Bethany. So we have one Mary there, right? Yeah. Then you have Mary Magdalene, the second bit, Mary. And then you have Maxime, Maximine, who was the one who had the church, San Maxime de San Baum, where Mary was buried, and Joseph Arimathea along with a whole bunch of other Christians. So it's Joseph's boat, it appears, and he's brought all these refugees from, from Judea, and they've, they've landed in southern France, near Provence. And that's where Mary Magdalene stays. But that's not the end of the story as far as Joseph's concerned, because then, of course, the tradition is that he goes to Britain. He goes back to Cornwall. He goes back to Glastonbury, and he turns up there. So you have, first of all, you have um, Mary Magdalene establishing herself in Provence, and you have other disciples going off to different parts of the world, you know, to India, to Egypt, etc. Yeah. But it was the job of, of Joshua Arimathea, who had already made contact with the British, to go and convert the Britons. And so he, he builds a, a Wattle and Daub chapel at Glastonbury, um, and, and from there he converts... Uh, the, the what we would call the pagans of Britain, as it were, but who mainly through the nobility and the, and the royalty, because the tradition is that he converted the king of Britain, um, mm. who at that time was called Bran. Have you ever heard of Bran? Yep. You have? He's yeah. called Bran the Blessed. Bran the Blessed, okay. And why he's called Bran the Blessed? Because he was the, one of the first Christians in Britain, converted by Joseph. So Joseph must have come, as the tradition says, he must have come with the Holy Grail, with the cup of Christ from the Last Supper, okay? And that gives him the authority, because it was used in the Eucharist, to be a preacher, to be a priest, to be a converter of, of pagans into Christianity. Mm. It was his authority. So you, you, you've got this situation now where we've moved from Judea, Caesarea to southern France, where Mary Magdalene hops off and a few others do, and then on round to, to Britain. Uh, and Lazarus apparently also came with Joseph, so he's also there. So we've moved already now to the far reaches of the, the known world at that time. Yeah. And, and in fact, the, the dates now are, are, are remarkable because this is happening mm. only a few years after the crucifixion. So the implications of that are pretty amazing, really, because... It means that Britain was one of the first places to be converted to Christianity. Yeah. Were there uh, okay. any, any kids on that boat? Kids? Well, there's one. I think she was called, um, is it Martha? Not Martha. There's, there's one who is supported, purportedly either as a servant of Mary Magdalene, 
from Africa or actually a daughter of Mary Magdalene. So then we get into that whole thing about the Holy Blood and Holy Grail thing, mm. where, you know, the descendants of the daughter of Mary Magdalene and Jesus begin a line of of, of kings uh, uh, and and also this Priory Desion thing that went around forever, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I'd rather not get involved in, really, if we can help it, because it's all a bit fictional. Yeah, it's uh, not secure, put it that way. No, so, uh, you know, it's it's possible that it was a daughter of Mary Magdalene in the boat, but um, it, it's not necessary for the for the story of the Holy Grail. If the Holy Grail is a cop, yeah. that, that physical object doesn't stay with Mary Magdalene. It goes off to Britain, according to our, our traditions, our British traditions. Yeah. So we're all in legend still, aren't we? We're we're still in legend. We're not we're not into history yet. We're just we've got a sort of rough idea of a historical scenario, but we're really dealing with legend at the moment. We're not dealing with written history. We've got lots of people writing about it, and there's one very interesting one that you might be interested in if I can just find it again, and that is um, Gildas. Have you heard of Gildas? Yeah, he was. Uh, no? he was one of the was he one of the early Christians in the UK. Well, he was a he's a he's a British monk. Monk, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, uh, and he's um, he's he's really Britain's first historian, right? Because Saint Bede actually quotes from him. So um, you know, he's 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 the earliest we get to this story of the Holy Grail coming to Britain, and he actually writes something which is really interesting in AD five four two. So we're in the fifth, you know, five hundreds. And he says this, he says, the light of Christ shone in Britain in the last year of the Emperor Tiberius. Wow. Okay, so, so he's actually saying that Christianity came to Britain in the last year of Emperor Tiberius. Now, Tiberius died in AD 37. Okay, so if Jesus was crucified in AD 28... We've only got a few years before these Christian refugees have arrived in southern France and also in Britain in AD 37. Now, I would trust Gildas on this because he's really early. He's earliest, one of the, as I say, the earliest historian in Britain. I think that's a pretty reliable, reliable piece of information. Uh, and that begins to start to be history now because we've got a written documentation here. Although it's looking back a few centuries it's still quite close to the events of the time. Yeah. So so here we are in, in the reign of Tiberius, the end of the reign of Tiberius, Joseph of Arimathea turns up in Britain. And and we're talking um we're talking about, about AD thirty seven. And this leads us to what happens next, because then we're looking to the era of Claudius coming up soon after Caligula. And Claudius is the guy who conquers Britain. Yeah. Okay, so although he doesn't personally take much involvement in it, it's Aulus Plautius, the general, who does all the work. But it it, it actually is in that time, because Julius Caesar failed to conquer Britain, but Claudius did as part of his great triumph. And so that happens in 43 AD, so only a few years later. Okay, so what happens, we think... And, it's, and we have it in Welsh tradition, Welsh legend, and also in, in British legend, that George of Arimathea converts Bran, the Blessed, and, his, and all his family. And his son-in-law, Bran's son-in-law, is Caradoc. Do you know who Caradoc is? No, I don't know that name. 
Do you know, have you heard of Karatikus? Yes, Karatikus, yes. Yes, well, Karatikus is his proper name. Karatikus is, is the Roman name for him, the Latin name for him. The Greek name was Karatikus, okay, without the C. Uh, and so we're talking about the conversion of the British royal family, and Karatikus, or Karadik, was the great high pendragon of Britain at the time that uh, Aulus Plautius um, brought the armies to Britain and invaded Britain. So they were fighting against Karadik. Okay, now Karadik was the son-in-law of Bran, and George Ralamathea, when he died, had passed the chalice, the cop, to Bran and the royal family. And it was then passed to Karadik after Bran, and Karadik gave it to his son, Lynn. Okay, now Lynn was his eldest son, and, and he was probably in there at about 18 or 19 years old at the time, because Karadik was fighting the, the Romans, and so his son had to take care of the, the important cup, the cup of Christ. So we, we're moving now through what we would call the Grail Keepers, right. starting with Joseph, going on to Bran, the blessed. By the way, um, the word Bran means raven, and uh, his head is support, supposedly buried under the mound of the Tower of London, mm-hmm. which is why the ravens there, you know the tradition of the ravens must never leave, because once once the ravens leave the Tower of London, Britain will fall. You know mm-hmm. that tradition? Yeah, they just yeah, left, I think. <laughs> no, that, that, no that, was, that was the prime minister. Don't worry about the rest of them. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so all these things are interlinked, you see. The ravens in the Tower of London, that mound that the, the Tower of London is built on, the tradition is that Bran's head is buried underneath that mound. Can I ask okay. you a quick sort of yeah. cont- contextual question? Yeah. I, I, want, I Would Britain at this time have been like a unified kingdom with a power base in London, or would it have been no. more tribal and southwest, yeah, southeast? Much, yeah, very much so. Let's pull up a map. Okay, so you have, in the southeast, you have the Canty. Guess what? Canterbury is named after them. Right. Okay. Okay, you have the Catuvelauni, uh, Verulamium, or Verulam, which was the capital of the, the tribe that Karatikus or Karadik was the ruler of, the Pendragon. Right. You have the Iceni up in the north east of yeah Boudica, and you have the Brigantes in Yorkshire, up in the north, and you have the Silures in South Wales. So there's lots of different tribes, but they they did accept a high king who they called the Pendragon. Right. He was elected amongst all these other kings of these different regions. So at this time, when the invasion took place, the high king, the Pendragon, was Caradoc. And Karadik is the Roman Karatikus. Now, what happened to him? Well, he fought and fought and fought for about seven or eight years until eventually he was defeated uh, at Ker Karadik, which is, uh, is sort of east of Wales slightly. Um, and he then fled north. Now, he, his wife, uh, the queen, and his daughter and the rest of the family were captured at that battle. And so the only one to escape was Karadik. And he went up to the Brigantes, uh, where Katiamandua was the queen. And she welcomed him, and then she informed the Romans and, <laughs> and sold him to the Romans. And so he ended up being captured and put in chains and taken to Rome, yep. along with the rest of his family. So now... The, the family of the Grail Keepers, the royal bloodline, 
that was carrying this cup had now been transported to Rome. So the cup had gone from Jerusalem to Caesarea, to southern France, to Britain, and from Britain now, a few years later in 50 AD, it's turning up now in, in Rome. It's holding it secretly. That, you know, when the family comes there, they almost don't know about it. They don't have a clue about this. It's well you know, before any Christians arrive in Rome. So guess what now? We've, we've got a situation where the British Christians are the first Christians in Rome, which is amazing. Okay, so you've got a family, a royal family. Now, what happens is that Caradoc, who Tacitus now calls Caraticus or Caractacus, is taken in front of the forum and uh, is about to be garroted, as is the the fate of all people who, who fight against Rome, all the kings who fight against Rome. But he's been educated, uh, able to speak Latin, because his, his father uh, and Sibylline and, um, and various other people at that time were always taken to Rome for education. So Caradagus could speak, could speak Latin. So he asks to be able to give a final speech to the emperor, Claudius, and the, and the, the Senate. And it's very famous. You can read it in Tacitus. This is this 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 famous speech. You want me to read it to you very quickly? Yeah, yeah. Let me, yeah, let me, let me find. I've just got an abbreviated version in Lancastrian. Okay, oh, so that's good. It's not quite in the high-flown Latin, but okay. It says this is what he says in front of of Claudius. He says, "If you Romans choose to lord it over the world, does it follow that the world must accept slavery?" If I had surrendered immediately, neither my fall nor your triumph would have become famous. My punishment would have been followed by oblivion. Whereas if you now save my life, I shall be an everlasting memorial to Roman clemency. So he's really appealing to Caligula now. And of course, Caligula swallows it hook, line and sinker and doesn't have him executed. So now we're in a situation where what does he do with the royal family from Britain? Well, believe it or not, he actually gives them a palace in Rome, which is called Palatium Britannicum, the <laughs> British palace. And that is where um, Caraticus is exiled. He's not allowed to return to Britain for seven years. Um, and, and so his family now live there. So the family is uh, a daughter called Gladys, Gladys certainly in Celtic means princess, okay? And, and there's lots of Gladyses in this period, but that's, this is Gladys, okay? And his son, Lynn, okay? Now, Lynn gets given a Latin name, Linus, yeah. okay? Now, Gladys is such a brilliant young girl. She's probably about 17 years old, something like that. She gets adopted by Claudius, the emperor, and given the name Claudia, and she's called Claudia Peregrina, Claudia the Foreigner. <laughs> right? And she is therefore protected by the emperor. So she actually doesn't get martyred in the end because she's too powerful, because she's the daughter of the emperor Claudius. So she lives out her life, whereas all the other <clears throat> Brits get executed various ones at different time, along with the other apostles. Mm. So we, ha- we have Lynn, <clears throat> who's the son of Caraticus, who has the cup of Christ, which has been handed down through the, the royal bloodline from Joseph Arimathea through to Bran, through to Caraticus, or Caradoc, and down to Lynn. 
So now Paul turns up in Rome. This is Don't forget this is about 50 AD. So now Paul turns up in Rome a few years later, about 56 AD, we think. In fact, the, the, um, I think it's Jerome who tells us that he turns up in the second year of Nero. Right. So we have a specific date. We know where Nero ruled. Firm date. Yes. Yeah. It's 56 AD, okay, I think. And so Paul turns up. Where does he go to live? He goes and lives with the British in the palace because he actually writes to them beforehand. <coughs> There's, um, where is that text? Let me see if I can find that one. <coughs> Excuse well, me. this be letters to the Romans? Uh, yes, probably. I think it is. Mm. Um, and, and of course, um, beforehand, he's writing to Tim- Timothy. Sorry, after he gets there. Uh, no, is that right? Yes, after he gets there, he writes to Timothy over in Ephesus. And he says, greetings from all these people, right? And the people he mentions are this Christian family living in Palatium Britannicum, Britannicum, including Claudia and Pudens, who is the husband of Claudia. She marries a, a Roman centurion called Pudens, okay, who becomes later on St. Pudens, he's a martyr. And, of course, he, he mentions Linus as well. So they're all there. And so he comes to live with them in Rome. Um and they've got this palace, which still exists today, believe it or not. Um, it's actually, I mean, I've been to see it. Um, you know where they, the, the Colosseum is, don't you? Yeah. In Rome. Yep. Well, if you go if you go sort of northish from there, you get to the Viminal Hill. And there, there is a church, a, a, the oldest church in Rome, oldest basilica. And it's called the Basilica Santa Pudenciana. And Santa Pudenciana, Pudenciana was the daughter of Pudens. Okay, so Saint Pudenciana is a girl, young girl, another martyr. And there's a Latin inscription on this this church, which is actually an old Roman palace villa, which is actually down below the street level today. You have to go down a whole load of steps to get to it. And on the on the wall of this this place, there's a Latin inscription from the second century AD, and this is what it says. It says in this sacred and most ancient of churches, formerly the house of Senator Sanctus Pudens. So this is the guy that married uh, um, Gladys, who is also called Claudia. And the home of the holy apostles. Holy apostles are Peter and Paul. Mm. Okay. A repose the remains of 3,000 blessed martyrs, which Pudenciana and Praxedes, two sisters, the virgins of Christ, the daughters of Pudens and... and, and um, I've lost the name, Claudia, interred with their own hands. So there's a cemetery there of 3,000 Christians being buried there, okay, around this around this place, because it's the first church in Rome, first Christian church in Rome. And it's the place where the apostles Paul and Peter came when they came to Rome. And, and Caesar Baronius in Annals Ecclesiastes, this is a bit late, it's 1588, so it's quite a lot later. He says this, It is delivered to us by the firm tradition of our forefathers that the house of Pudens, the husband of Claudia, was the first that entertained St. Peter in Rome, where the Christian congregation formed the church, and that all of all the churches, the oldest is that which is called after the name of Pudens, so Santa Pudensiana. So we're starting to get now a legend that's substantiated by a lot of texts, a lot of information. So it's starting to be less of a legend and more of a history now. Are you getting the picture? Yeah, because we're getting sort of non, non-Christian non written sources yeah. plus actual yeah. physical sites. 
Yes, and and you've got inscriptions on walls of this building, okay, which is amazing. Um, and it is located in and in, in exactly where you would expect the Palatium Britannicum to be located. So now the, the consequences of all this are fundamentally astonishing because it means that the first Christians in Rome were British and they were the royal family. Okay, now... This is where it gets really interesting, because when Paul arrives there and stays for a couple of years, he then makes Linus, the son of Caraticus, the first bishop of Rome. Yeah, yeah. Not, people not think it's Peter, Peter, but it wasn't. Yeah. No, not Peter. It's Linus. Yeah. And we actually have, we have texts from the Vatican, the Vatican archive, mentioning the fact that Linus was the first bishop of Rome, anointed by Paul, and that he was the son of a British king. Yeah. Pause for shock and horror. <laughs> well, yeah, because, yeah. you know, look at this throws into question apostolic succession and what the well, church exactly. is built on, you know, yeah. St. Peter's and throne. I, exactly. And we're all Brits, so it's it's all very nice for us to say all this. Absolutely. But it is. It's supported by a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we, we, we've, we've come to the sort of end of the first chapter, basically, which is that the cup has come from Jerusalem to Caesarea on a ship to southern France near Marseille, and then it's taken by Joseph to Glastonbury. He then converts the British king and the family, who then became the grail keepers, the cup of Christ keepers, until the time of... Caradoc, when he's defeated by the Romans, taken in chains to Rome, and his son, who holds the cup of Christ in his hand, becomes the first bishop of Rome. That's why he becomes the first bishop of Rome, because he can perform the Mass, the Eucharist, with the very cup that Jesus used in the Last Supper. It gives him the authority to be the bishop of Rome. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. So that's really... Part one, okay, okay, and part two is um, probably even more interesting. I don't know. You may not think so, but I think so because I live in Spain. Mm. So we, we jump on a couple of centuries to 258 AD, and then we've got um, a Roman emperor. I'm going to try and find him for you. Um, called Valerian. Have you heard of him? Yeah, Emperor mm -hmm. Valerian. Well, he's elected emperor in 253. Uh, and then he, he goes off, he, he boggles off to um, ancient Persia, and he fights against the, against the Sasanians yeah. in 254 BC, and he leaves his um, son in charge, who's called Gallienus. <clears throat> so he's like acting Caesar in Rome while um, the emperor Valerian is off fighting a war. What happens then is he, he gives instructions to his son to gather together all the Christians and to kill them all. It's one of the first of the persecutions of the Christians. Now, um, eventually, Valerius is captured by a, a king of the Sasanians called Shapur, Shapur the Great, and he's, and he's tortured to death in 260 AD, so that's the end of him. Nasty piece of work. But his son um, goes and does his duty to his father's instructions and gathers together. He gets the Pope. He captures the Pope who's uh, giving a mass down in the, in the catacombs. And this Pope is called Pope Sixtus II. And he gets executed by having his head chopped off. Um, but before he dies, 
he gives instructions to his deacon, who's in charge of the Vatican treasure, the you know the the early bishops of Rome's treasure, which includes the the cup of Christ, the the Holy Grail, and he tells him to get the hell out of of Rome with the cup, get the cup out of there, so that Valerian's lot can't grab hold of it and take it. So it's such, such a precious object to the to the Christian Church, early Christian Church. So this deacon is called Saint Lawrence or Lorenzo. Okay, so all these things like Sir Lawrence Seaway and all that are all named after it. And um, he manages to get the cup to uh, a knight called um, Procilias, who's a Spanish knight in the Roman army. Right. Because at this time, of course, Rome owns Iberia. It yep. dominates Iberia. And so the cup is taken by Procilias to uh, Spain. All right. A few days later... Uh, St. Lawrence, as he becomes a St. Lainter, Lawrence, the deacon, is arrested by a Valerian's mob and he's burnt alive, roasted alive, on a gridiron. Now, this is... Don't laugh at this. Don't wait to laugh at this. Right? It's too late. His, yeah, his, his dying words were, turn me over, I'm done on this side, and eat. <laughs> Which is why he's the patron saint of comedians and chefs. <laughs> You're going to hell, David. I can't believe you said I'm that. No, I'm telling you, it's true. <laughs> you ask any comedian or any chef who the patron saint of is, they'll say St. Lawrence. Well, talk about gallows humour. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Wonderful story. Anyway, um, so he gets buried outside the walls of Rome. Uh, a very famous Catholic saint. But the cup then is carried to Huesca in, in near to Zaragoza, up in Aragon, which is the home of St. Morris's family, Lorenzo's family. Right. And it stays in the farmhouse there for a few years before the, the cathedral at Huesca is constructed and it's then placed inside the cathedral. But then, of course, what happens is the Moors invade uh, Spain and they threaten the Christians up in northeastern Spain. So they take the cup, this cup, and they hide it in a chapel in the Pyrenees, a little chapel by a stream, which I've been to see. You can hardly get there by car. It's very difficult. And and then it gets moved to uh, a college uh, monastery where the kings of Aragon are raised and taught, and it's used there in the, in the rituals there. And the Aragonese kings become the keepers of the grail, the holy grail, the red cup. It, oh, I didn't mention the fact it was red, did I? It's actually red agate, this cup, okay? Mm. And it was it was made in the first century AD. The style of it is first century AD. And it was either made in Damascus or Tarsus or somewhere like that, possibly Alexandria. But it's from that period, okay? So it fits in with the with the story of the of the Last Supper. And it would be something that Joshua Aramathy would have purchased from somewhere. So... The Grail is hidden away from the Moors, who don't eventually manage to capture the Kingdom of Aragon. So that it remains a Visigoth uh, center, Christian center. And and these these kings of Aragon are the keepers of the Grail. The most famous of which is called Alfonso el Batallador, or Alfonso the First. Alfonso the Battler is his name in Spanish, and he is actually the he is made the Holy Emperor of Rome of of sorry of Spain by the Holy Roman Emperor so and the popes. So he becomes the, the big wig in the Christian world in northern Spain. 
and he fights against the Moors, etc. He actually fought with El Cid uh, when they when they captured Valencia, when El Cid captured Valencia. So he's a, a historical figure, yeah, very famous figure in Spain. And he kept the, the this cup in a monastery, a fortified monastery, in this part of the Pyrenees, the foothills of the Pyrenees, called San Juan de la Peña, or St. John of the Crag. And the, the grail was kept there for quite a few centuries after Alfonso died. This is where we get in, finally, to the story of Percival and, oh, and wow. Arthur. Wow, yeah. right. Yes, so... We forget Arthur, he's got nothing to do with it, quite frankly. But Percival does, and the story of Percival being of the court of King Arthur is woven into that legend, that British legend, but he's the one that's sent on the mission to find the Holy Grail, isn't he? Yes. Sir Percival. Mm. So now we get to the famous troubadours who wrote the stories of the Holy Grail and the quest for it, which were Chrétien de Troyes, of what we would call Troy today in in uh, the area of uh, Champagne, eastern France. And and Wolfram von Eschenbach, who is the great German knight who wrote the story of Parsifal, Parsifal um, a few years after Chrétien. So those two are the main writers who tell the story. Well, we'll follow Parsifal in the in the German tradition because that's that's the one that gives us all the clues. Uh, and so Percival or Parsival turns up at a place called Bars. Okay. Now Bars is Spanish Barça, which oh. is Barcelona. Okay. So that's where he ends up on his quest. And then he, he goes along the Ebro Valley. So if you read Pars uh, if you read Parsifal, you'll see it's called Ebro Bars, which means the combination of the River Ebro and Barcelona. So he travels up northwest past Saragossa, and he arrives uh, at a place where the instructions of a, uh, a monk who was given the instructions in the first place when he was visiting a chapel in the mountains, which is the chapel that I told you about earlier on, where the Holy Grail was kept for a while. And he, and he asked the, the, the monk who's in that chapel, where could he find a place for the night where he could stay because he's on this quest for the Grail? And he and the monk tells him that he is the brother of the Grail keeper, the keeper of the Grail, the Fisher King. Okay, so remember that because when we come to all this story, we'll find out who this brother was. So he gets this instruction to go along the Ebro Valley, and he he says, "Turn right at the Great Rock." Okay, so I've been on this route, and I can see exactly where it is. There's a huge rock sticking up out of the of the valley, and next to it, there's a river valley, and you follow it uh, due north, and you arrive at a place called Mont Salvation. Mont Salvation in Spanish, Salvation, okay, which is Mont Salvash in the German version, the Wolfram's version, of the place where the Holy Grail Castle is located. Montsalvage is Montsalvation in Spanish, okay? And then he turns up at this castle that nobody can find if they try to find it. They only ever find it by accident. And that is San Juan de la Peña, because if you go to San Juan de la Peña, you cannot see it until you arrive within 50 feet of it. It is hidden in a gorge beneath a cliff where, where, where the actual fortified monastery is built into the cliff. It actually overhangs by the cliff, and you can't see it. And it's right next to a mountain called Mont Salvation. 
Okay. Wow. So Samuel de la Peña is the Grail Castle. And the king, he comes to meet the Fisher King, is Alfonso I of Aragon, whose Latin name is Anfortas. And Anfortas is the name of the Anfortas is the name of the Grail King. Why is he called the Fisher King? Because Alfonso, he, he attacked a city on the coast of, of Spain. Um, and he besieged it for a while, and just to upset the people inside the city, he used to go fishing outside the, the city in the sea. So he became known as the Fisher King. Okay, so Alfonso El Batallador, El Batallador, the great fighter against the Moors, is Anfortas Rex, who is the Grail King of the of the of the legend. So this 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 cup, this this red cup, has now turned up in Saman de la Peña, where it stays for centuries. Eventually, there's a fire in the monastery, and the cup is handed over to the what then were the, the Dukes of Barcelona. And the Dukes of Barcelona then become kings later on. Now, what happens to uh, Alfonso is that he dies with a wound that's caused at the Battle of Fraga in his groin with a spear. And that is the story, again, of Anfortas, who cannot die when Percival comes to the secret Grail Castle. The wounded king is unable to die because he has a wound in the groin. Okay, so again, it ties in with the historical figure. But, of course, the Grail King um, in the legend is relieved of the inability to die when Percival takes over the job of looking after the Grail. Okay, but in the, in the Alfonso story, he then dies, and he's succeeded by his brother, who is a monk. He's the only one of the family left who can become the king. So the brother who told Percival in the, in the chapel in the Pyrenees to go and seek out his brother, the king, the Fisher King, is actually Pedro El Monje, the monk, who becomes the successor of Alfonso I of Aragon. So, again, the story ties through beautifully. So we now end up with this cup of Christ, which is now embellished with a chalice of gold and pearls, etc., and with a base of red agate, which is an upturned dish. So the, the cup is mounted on the top. Then you have a golden Byzantine metalwork with pearls and semi-precious stones. And then the base is an upturned dish made also of red agate. Okay. Oh, and this then, two, two grails for the price of one. Is that where we get the oh, dish and the cup from then? You're getting much more than that <laughs> because on scratched on it, on the base, very difficult to see, but you can scratch, scratch it, is an Arabic inscription <clears throat> calling it <clears throat> well, the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> so it's actually... And then, and then you find that in, in various traditions of the legend of the Holy Grail, it is sometimes called sometimes called the Philosopher's Stone. Arabic? Okay. Why is it inscribed Arabic. With, in Arabic? Because when it was put together, the chalice was put together with the cup and the gold, they, they acquired from a Muslim who was ruling in Andalusia this Philosopher's Stone agate dish, which they then mounted into the chalice. Right. Okay. Okay. Got you. All right. So, so we're nearly at the end of this. I'm sure we're about four hours into this now. But anyway, um, so it's now in the hands of the kings of Barcelona. 
And and that's in that place that you went to see, the Barcelona Palace, where mm. the kings were. It was kept there for a while. Oh. And eventually, a few hundred years later, it was actually sold to Valencia. And it ended up in Valencia Cathedral, where it is today. Oh. You can actually go and see it behind the altar in the Grail Chapel, in the court, what they call the, 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 the Chapel of the Santo Calif, the sacred chalice or the holy chalice. And uh, it's been in there for several hundred years. Um, Napoleon tried to get hold of it, and they they took it off to Mallorca while Napoleon was ruling because they didn't want him to grab hold of it. No. Because it's always a power symbol. It's always been a power symbol, this thing. Yeah, all the relics the Na- have been, haven't they? Yeah, and then the Nazis tried to get hold of it. Himmler was looking for it in Spain. Um, and so they hid it under the floorboards of a farmhouse <laughs> quite near to Barcelona by two people who looked after it. And then it was brought back to the cathedral. And every year it's taken out and processed around the square in Valencia. One year, uh, well, dozens of years ago now, probably about 40, 50 years ago, they gave the privilege of carrying the chalice to an old canon from the cathedral. And he tripped and fell and dropped it. <laughs> no. And he smashed it to smithereens. And he was so petrified and so freaked out by it that he had a heart attack and died on the spot. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So they glued it all back together. Oh. And it's now sitting behind the altar in the Grail Chapel. And you can go and see it. Anybody can go and see it in, in Valencia. And the not this current Pope, Francis, but the previous two, John Paul II and yeah. Ratzinger, Benedict, the first thing they did when they became Pope was to come to Valencia and perform the Mass with this chalice, with the Cup uh, of Christ. They know, don't so, they? Exactly. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> they know damn well that it's the real thing. Okay. So that's my story. Okay. Now you can ask me questions. You should have been asking me questions all along, but anyway. I just like listening. I like listening to all the history. I, I, uh, I thought we might be heading to Valencia. And uh, of all the um, contenders, candidates, yeah, candidates, candidates, yep, yeah, it seems to make sense. Um, the sort of the uh, scholars in ancient pottery have, have dated it. You looking at it and analysing the shape and the Correct. volume and the way it's made, they mm-hmm. say it fits. It's first century yep. AD, and it, could it, it? I think I read somewhere. Is it not related to some sort of um, ceremonial cup that was? That was used in Passovers. In Passovers? Uh, a, a Jewish, well, like a Jewish... Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the only way that would be is if Joseph Arimathea, who was a Jew, and he was in the Sanhedrin, before Christianity used it for that purpose, that's, that's entirely possible. But don't forget what I said at the very beginning. This was a Passover feast. The Last mm. Supper was a Passover feast. <laughs> so it's logical... Mm-hmm. for that cup to be brought out for him to use. But at that moment, when we have the Eucharist, we turn from Judaism to Christianity. That's the transitional moment in time when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And that that symbol of that cup is the key, really, to the power of the Christian church all the way through this era because it was such a, you know, an important uh, relic, perhaps the greatest of all the relics, I would guess. Yeah, I think it strengthens its case that it that it you yeah. know if it bears similarities to a yeah. contemporary uh, vessel that was used in Jewish Passover ceremonies prior Absolutely. to that, it strengthens the case for me. 
Yeah, and, and once you know there are two, there are two Shabbats, there's uh, Sabbaths, there's the High Sabbath of the Passover, and then two days later there's the there's the Friday um, Shabbat, which is the weekly Sabbath. That explains everything about why there's a plural of Sabbaths in the in the um, in the texts uh, in the Gospels in one Gospel anyway. And, and the fact that there's a three-day gap between the burial of Jesus and the so-called empty tomb. So that all fits much better once you realize there's a Passover uh, Shabbat and there's the weekly Shabbat mm. following out on afterwards. Just going to that the... That only happens in 26 AD, or 28 yeah. AD, sorry. Yeah, 28 so, AD. so it fits. Going back to the, the three days and the resurrection, a lot of people... Um, point this towards the the winter solstice and they, and they think of Jesus as like a, a sun day they compare him with earlier sun deities and that the sun mm-hmm. is seen to on the la, la, shortest day of the year sort of hangs in the sky for three days and then the sun yep. is reborn if you like what uh-huh. do you think is going on there is this like a, a romanize no. a later romanization no have you got another hour <laughs> oh no i know <laughs> no okay let me just tell you quickly if the crucifixion took place on the Mount of Olives, near the summit of the Mount of Olives, incidentally, where there is a tomb from this period with a big stone that's been rolled to one side, just a few hundred feet away yeah. up there, okay, it looks down on the axis of the Temple of Herod that previously was the Temple of Solomon. It looks right down onto the facade of the temple because the facade of the temple faces east, for the sunrise, because in Yahwism or, or, the, or the symbolism, we have this solar cult or this solar ideology, uh, which we see in the Psalms of David, where God is the light of the sun, is the light, okay? And so it, it, the idea is the orientation of the temple is such that theologically, the sunrise will light the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is located, theologically. Okay, so when Jesus is executed on the, on the cross, the moment he dies, the temple curtain, which there are two of them, there's one in the Holy of Holies, and there's a big one that hangs on the outside of the facade of the temple. From the position of the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers can see that this great big curtain is torn asunder, it's ripped in two at the moment of Jesus' death. Now, that's mentioned there, which is more evidence that the only place the crucifixion could have taken place is on the Mount of Olives to the east of the temple where the sun rises. So you have a connection. And it's also, by the way, the place where the so-called um, ascension takes place. The, the place of the so-called ascension to heaven is on that Mount of Olives too in the same location. So everything is, is worked out to fit with the theology of Yah wisdom and the solar cult. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In fact, there was, there was a chariot of the sun in the temple forecourt, uh, the Jewish temple, which was associated with Yahwism, with Yahweh. Wow. This is absolutely fascinating, David. I wish... I wish uh, we could have you every week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Not on my age. No, no, sorry. But um, I realised... We'll have to come back in another couple of years then. How about yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, because I, reala- yeah, I realise you're an hour ahead of us and time's knocking on and mm-hmm. I don't want to keep oh, you up longer than we... Well, I'm more worried about you. You've got all your other stuff to do after this, haven't you? Oh, you know no. what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll manage. Mm-hmm. Um, is well, there... I, thought, I thought I was... Go on, sorry. 
I was gonna I was gonna wrap up to be honest with you and ask you if you know if there's anything you want to leave us with anything you've got coming up you want to tell us about or um well not really I've got books to be right and uh, stuff coming out and uh, I just thought I did a bit better this time because I wasn't rushing like the clappers the last one we did together I was r- running so fast it was hardly worth listening to me this time <laughs> I hope I've been a bit slower and you've managed to absorb it but it's been complicated hasn't it and it there's is. a lot of it stuff has. to go through and I've missed out loads yeah, yeah. But there you go. But uh, it's a, it's a story that's worth pursuing if you want to research it. You're into this sort of thing. I doubt if I'm ever going to write a book about it. I don't think I've got it in me. Have you not to t- touched on the Holy Grail on any of your previous books? No, not really. no, no. I'm not. I'm not a New Testament scholar. I'm already a Christian scholar. I'm a Old Testament, Late Bronze Age Egyptologist, dirt, dirt archaeologist. Mm-hmm. So it's not something I've been trained into, but I'm, I've been trained into how to get the interdis- interdisciplinary material together to cr- construct a storyline or a history. Mm-hmm. And I think, I tell you what, it would make a great movie, wouldn't it? Or a TV series. It would, wouldn't you could, it? You could, have yeah. a, you could have a three-part TV series about the early part in, in Israel, Judea, then the British part, then the Roman part, then the Spanish part. Yeah. Four-part series. Anyone? Yeah, that would be good fun. Uh, go fund me. <laughs> yeah. I have yeah, someone exactly. saying go fund me in my ear. I think we should set this All up. Right. You need to get yeah, your uh, linen suit yeah. pressed. Head of cinematography, oh, Amish Phil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, OK. All right. I'll do well, sound. I'll tell you what, we all... All three of us could come and do it, can't we? Together, we yes. could be the we could we could be the uh, the knights of the square table, <laughs> all right, in search of the Holy Grail. Excellent. So there you go. You, you'll have well. you, so you'll have to get um, Ben Ben back because that would make one for each side of the table. Then if you could do that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm okay. sure he would come back yeah. for that. He would. So yeah. anyway, well. have you enjoyed it? Absolutely. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I've learned loads from that. Um, yeah. Good. And, uh, it, might, it might not be true. You can people can criticize it, but I think it holds together quite well. Well, yeah. just looking at the comments we've had on the live stream, people are pretty blown away. Kellyanna yeah. says, "Thank yeah. you so much, David. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely fascinating. Whoa, yeah. great <laughs> guest. Amazing. So yeah. it's been great. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah. We shall sign off. For, we'll yeah. sign off for this part, and uh, we'll see you lot." in uh, podcast land for part two. Um, mm-hmm. David, stay on the line for us just for one minute while we I play will. ourselves out. Yeah. Take Thanks care. so much for your time. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. Tried to cut the cripple off there in his prime. Yeah. He's, he's not he, here, he's, he's even more crippled with sunburn. <laughs> that was our chat with David Roll. What a hero. Just keeps on rolling, doesn't he? Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. What? Now, now, the question is, is David a legend or a myth? <laughs> hey! I think he is a real person. Yeah. But uh, things have been uh, added to him. So, he's a legend. I, do, I agree. He's definitely a legend. Mm. He just knows so much. He does, doesn't he? Like, this isn't his specialty. No. You know, he's an Egyptologist. I think he called himself a dirty archaeologist. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he, like, works with dirt. Yeah, that's it. Dig in. Yeah. So there you go, you know. Go and see uh, the Holy Grail in Valencia. Valencia. Yeah. yeah, it's there for all to see mm-hmm. in the little. Because uh, the Pope knows. The Pope knows. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, 
check it out. And check out David's book. Um, his Amazon author page will be in the show notes. He's, he's done loads of great books in this area. And well, not in this area, but in you know biblical history. Has a TV show as well. I think you can find on YouTube. It was on Channel oh, Four. You still watch it? I think so. Yeah, I think I found it. Cool. That was on the uh, New Chronology, I think. Yes, that was to do with Egypt, wasn't it? Ancient Egypt, yeah. Yeah, he did his... Epi- well, listen to the first episode we did with him. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what number it was, but... Yeah, we, we've had David on before talking about the New Chronology, which was great, and some Old Testament stuff. Yeah, I, did, I had no idea what he was talking about with that. <laughs> and then he asked me a question. He said, hey, have I got any questions at the end? And I'm wanting to say no, because I have no idea what you were talking about. Oh, well. But I could follow that one. Yeah, because it's so... It's ingrained in our culture, isn't it? Exactly. Indiana Jones and Mm. Monty Python and The Last Crusade. These stories have persisted for centuries. Yeah. So uh, we can all relate to it. Mm. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. It's romantic. That's why they call them the Grail Romances. Like you mentioned, Wolfram von Aschenbach. Mm. They didn't mention Thomas Mallory. uh, The Thomas Mallory Grail Romance. But I believe his were based on the Chrétien de Troyes. Mm. and the German, Parsival. So, yeah, it's great. Mm. Fantastic. Should we move on? Should we do some headlines? Headlines. Go. Capital letters. A big news story. Headlines of the week. Man perplexed after learning his girlfriend has been secretly chewing on socks. Yeah, I'm just stunned into silence with the first headline every week. (laughs) A man claims to have sought answers after learning his girlfriend has been chewing on her socks in secret. However, she refuses to offer an explanation, leaving him confused. I mean, I'd be confused. Yeah, man. If there was no explanation forthcoming. And, you know, there is the question of oral hygiene... Yeah, and were they used socks? Yes, the socks that she has worn. And we don't want to be getting oral thrush, do we? You know, kind of a fungal infection. Absolutely of not. Of the mouth from your, from your sweaty... No, this trotters. is, uh, I'm guessing, tra- childhood trauma. Would you like to <laughs> diagnose this woman, Amish Matt? Yes, I'm going to say she's traumatised. Yeah, simple as. Yeah. Next. Deaths with unknown causes, now Alberta's top killer. Province. Province, the province of Alberta in Canada. Yeah, this is weird. I've got some slides here from the, uh, this is from uh, Calgary T- CTV, Calgary TV. Anyway, uh, top 10 causes of death in 2021, in with a bullet at number one. Ill-defined and unknown causes, 3,362. Not defined a third. Hmm? That was a poor joke, carry on. (laughs) Uh, And then we've got dementia. Dementia. (laughs) Dementia, which is normally at the top spot. COVID in with a bullet there and and all the usual things. Chronic ischemic heart disease, malignant neoplasms. So that'd be cancer, won't it? Mm. Myocardial infarction, heart attacks, Mm. all the usual stuff. And then uh, what we've got here, this is the change. So the change in... This uh, category of death, unknown or ill-defined causes of death. So back in 2019, it was 522 Mm. deaths categorised this way. Uh, In 2020, it went up to 1,464. And then 2021, it 
went over double that to 3,362. And before this day, it never even registered in the top cause of death. So something weird going on in the mm. state of Normandy, Denmark. <laughs> in the state of Denmark. Uh, here's, I've just got some more slides. Next slide, please. Top cause of death over the last four years. So this is 2018. We've got dementia, as you'd imagine, number one. Heart disease, cancer, COPD, heart attacks. And then we go forward to 2019, dementia, heart disease. Exactly the same, basically. Same mm. order. Uh, and then 2020, the year of COVID, with no no magic juice to protect us. COVID's there at number six. It makes it into the top six. And all the other one to five are, as previously, dementia, heart disease, cancer. Oh, and then no, here it comes at number four. Yeah. Ill-defined and unknown causes rears its ugly head in 2020 at number four. And then uh, 2021... Um, it goes to the top spot, displacing dementia and uh, COVID-19 is at number three. Mm. So, weird, weird stuff going on. No one knows why. Yeah. No one has an idea why. <laughs> That's a spoiler alert. I know, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, something to keep an eye on. Why are people dying and we don't know why? Why do people have to die, Amishville? They have to die. It's part of our human condition. We are, we are in this mortal coil. Mm. You can't keep people alive forever. It would be handy to know why people die under what circumstances. Like unknown and ill-defined is uh, pretty piss poor for 2022. Mm. You know, there has to be a reason. Even, even What we need is stratification of these results. I want to know... What are the, you know, what's the age distribution of these ill-defined and unknown deaths? Are they all people in their 20s and 30s? I hope not. Or are they people in their 70s and... Well, can mm. we, can we, can someone, like, put a foyer in and find out? I think we have a right to know, mm. you know, when we're conducting massive experiments on people. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave that there. Put a pin in that and hopefully we'll get more information. We need to know what's going on. I'm not going to say it, Kelly, Anna, but, you know, we need uh, we need uh, explanations. We need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Adults who still drink milk, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> this is from Vice. Yeah. Unless you're a hungry baby, drinking milk on its own is unsettling behaviour. I, I, I need to talk to my niece, but technically she's not. An adult, yeah, she's only 17. But yeah, milk's her favourite drink. I don't know if this is the vegan agenda at work. Oh, right, okay. Advice, but I've got, uh, I've got, I've printed out some highlights from the story. It's worth it just to get to the kicker. Um, Daisy was the author's name, the journalist's name. I was at Glastonbury last month waiting for Diana Ross when I spotted a grown man queuing up for somewhere called the Milk Stand. Mm-hmm. He propped his elbow against the bar, rubbed his goatee and went, Just a carton of milk for me, please, mate. It was 28 degrees outside. And just as the opening chords of, I'm coming out, begun, I could see him out of the corner of my eye, guzzling milk, little streams of white liquid cascading down his chin. And I thought, sorry, are you okay? I mean, I don't think I'd like a carton of milk on a hot day <laughs> if, especially if it wasn't refrigerated like warm 
cheesy milk remind you of primary school? Yes. I was milk monitor at primary school. I bet you were, you I used fucking to go, nerd. I used to go early and put the milk out. Me, me and Glenn Weirden. Really? Yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> I'm not the only person who finds the sight of grown-ass adults drinking whole milk unsettling. Type adult and milk into Twitter and you'll see tweets like, I do not trust adults who drink milk. And adults who drink milk straight out from the glass disturb me. Because it is disturbing. It's like seeing an adult man wearing a T-shirt and no pants like Winnie the Pooh. Or when people kiss their dog on the mouth for ages. Or when someone over the age of 16 uses the word mommy in a non-kink setting. Non? So it's okay to use mommy in a, in a kink setting? According to this author. Yeah, because yeah, you, you can't shame that. No. This isn't just a vegan era thing either. Mm. Not just, but it's obviously heavily influenced by... Part of the zeitgeist, isn't it? Adult milk drinking has long been used to evoke creepiness in films. In Stanley Kubrick's A Cockwork Orange, there's the Karova milk bar in which Alex and his droogs sup on drug-laced milk in preparation for a night of violence. There's the famous milk scene in in Inglorious Bastards, in which uh, Nazi Colonel Hans Lander glugs milk before murdering an entire family. In Westworld, the evil android bandits are seen knocking back bottles of milk, even though they don't require sustenance. Milk is used to show that something is wrong. I'm not saying that everyone who drinks milk is a murderous psychopath, but it's unhinged behaviour. No. No, I don't think so. But she's getting there. This is... You may change your mind after this paragraph. Okay. To understand why this might be, let's take a closer look at what milk actually is. It's essentially an emulsion of fat, protein, sugar and water which is produced by the mammary glands of mammals. Yeah. In humans, milk is formed within the alveoli, grape-like clusters of cells within the breast, which is then excreted out of the nipple. Yeah. Milk, then, is liquid created inside the body, specifically for babies, before they can eat solid food. With the above in mind, why are you, as an adult, drinking white liquid which was made inside a body. And worse, why are you drinking the white liquid of cows specifically? You know what other liquids fit within this category? Cum and discharge. <laughs> no, they, they don't, because cum and discharge isn't, isn't tasty. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't knock it till you've tried it. It isn't, though. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I will continue drinking, having milk in my coffee... Occasional bowl of cereal. Don't really have cereal anymore. Mm. Um, and milkshakes, the occasional milkshake. And ice cream, obviously. And yeah. butter. Lots of butter. Um, tasty butter. So so I wonder if this fuck here mm. um, has butter. Yeah, because it's the same substance, isn't it? Or a cake. Hey, it's the vegan agenda, man. They're just softening you up. The drip feeding this stuff through the media. Are they buttering me up? We can't say that. Absolutely, buttering your butox. (laughs) Ready for the the plunge. Into the manufactured meat world. Into the bugs. Yeah, well, yeah, fake meat and bugs. Bug protein. There was an article recently about um, there might be some evidence that we can't actually digest this uh, man-made meat. It doesn't break down the same way as real meat, apparently, in our gut. What a shocker. (laughs) Fake meat isn't good for you. Wow. Hey, let's... Can we get some science on this? Just to confirm, because, you know... 
let's not go straight to saying that it's it, it can't. It was just that is like a half inkling. What what have we been told for like the last decade? Eat naturally. You know, processed food. Don't eat processed food. It's bad for you. Give you cancer. Even bacon, which is just meat that's salted. Mm. Oh, it's processed. Stay away from that. But hey, you can have this vat of, <laughs> of cells that have been grown. That's great. That's good for you, man. And it's good for the environment, for Mother Earth, for Gaia. Come off it. Full of... <laughs> anyway, let's... We're, oh, we need to go through the headlines quick because it's been a massive week in British yeah, and, politics. I know. I was just going to say, how are you going to... Segway. How are you going to get through it all, yeah? Oh, well, I haven't got a lot because it's just a clusterfuck, isn't it? I like to. Let's start with this from uh, PMQ's Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday when one of of Bojo the Clown's own backbenchers asked him a question. Mr Speaker, does the Prime Minister think there are any circumstances in which he should resign? (laughs) No. No. Yes, uh, that was before... He fell on his sword. Who actually asked that? Oh, some backbencher. Oh. I recognise him, but I couldn't name him. He's a, a nobody, a no mark, <laughs> ineffectual. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you um, sent a video, on a TikTok video. I send the best videos, don't I? I don't know where to do it because it's really long. Which one is it? The, the, about the, Boris giving us our freedom. The um, the headlines Daily from like, Mail. the Mail and the Telegraph. Oh, I think you've got to play that one, definitely. It's only about four minutes long, isn't it? It's less than that, but Three it minutes. gets better as it goes along yeah. because he talks about the role of the press. Yeah, stay, stay, try and stay with it. Okay. Thank you, Boris. You gave Britain back its freedom. Uh, what? You gave uh, Britain back its freedom. That's apparently the best the Express could do this morning. What the hell have they done? And right on cue, there is the Daily Mail doing its level best to publicly soil itself. What the hell have they done? I mean, the Daily Mail has actually been on quite a journey the last couple of years. Uh, Legacy editor Paul Dacre stepped down in 2018. He agreed to step down after 26 years in that role, and he would be replaced by one Geordie Grieg. And Grieg was quite successful. He kept up the reins, business as usual, until he made one fundamental error in around November last year, when he decided to report some news. Indeed, on Grieg's watch, there were about two weeks' worth of damning headlines, each one outlining the depths to which the Tory party was plunging itself into sleaze. Now, we don't know exactly the contents of any discussions between Number 10 and the owner of the Daily Mail, Lord Rothermere, but we do know that shortly after he ran those headlines, Grieg was ousted as editor of the Daily Mail, and Dacre, with his Little England ultra-conservative sensibilities, was moved back in. And- That's convenient, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Convenient yeah. timing. Since then, the Mail's coverage of the Conservative Party has been broadly positive, oh. mostly because there are rumours that Dacre and Johnson have struck a deal. Dacre no. will guarantee that pieces that are run in the... Day- Polit- politicians striking deals? With figures of the media? I know, yeah. Sorry, I'll just uh, roll that back. Touch. 
are rumours that Dacre and Johnson have struck a deal. Dacre will guarantee that pieces that are run in the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday are not too critical of Team Johnson. He will give a set amount of puff pieces, broadly positive coverage for the Conservative Party. And in return, Johnson would furnish Paul Dacre with, ideally, the head of Ofcom role. Very nearly almost fucking happened. So the off Ofcom is our regulator for media. Mm. So uh, if you see something on telly um, that's sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, inaccurate in a news programme or something, mm. you can report it to Ofcom and they, they they regulate advertising and all aspects of television, don't they, and radio, I think. Yeah. Is it, is it not? Do not do the papers as well? Ofcom? Mm, not sure. Right, OK. Answers on a postcard. And now Ofcom's off the cards, it's all about this peerage. Indeed, though the headlines read like parody, they have to be viewed in the context of Paul Dacre making a last-ditch attempt to secure himself a peerage in these closing chapters of Boris Johnson's political career. Quick, before he leaves. Yeah. I need my peer. A peerage is when you become a lord of the realm. Forever. What's the going day rate, day rate for a lord? I, th- I think the last time I checked it was maybe 320 quid a day. Really? Just to go in and sign in and then fuck off. Wow. Plus expenses. I need to be a lord. Well, you need to be like the editor of the Daily Mail or something first so that you can do a cut a deal. That's like 70 grand a year, isn't it? If you could do it every day, get the train down every... Put your trains nice and early, sign in, sign out, um, and then, you know, you you could be making a decent profit there, couldn't you? Yeah, and think of all the the cachet, all the residuals of being a peer, Mm. you know? Looks good on the old. Looks good on LinkedIn, doesn't it? But that's the thing is, they can they can veto. Is that? Am I getting this right? Is, do they get to veto laws? So it, when we yeah. the, the government writes laws, it it's goes Sensitive through. Laws. Yeah, yeah. But do they actually ha- are they actually allowed to sort of say, yeah, you're not passing this? It's a weird sort of constitutional thing, isn't it? Because um, they don't like to. They don't like to be seen to be interfering because they aren't an elected house. Yeah. Whereas in the US, they have the the Senate. It's it's like the Senate. The House of Lords is like the Senate, but it isn't elected. Mm-hmm. They are um, chosen. Chosen. Yeah. They did Commission. used to be, and there are real lords in it as well. There are real lords, hereditary peers. Mm-hmm. They're called people mm-hmm. who have been lords through the the generations. Anyway, uh, last. Uh, few seconds. That is the prism we need to view this through. It's one of tax-dodging press barons, their subservient editors chasing House of Lords peerages no matter the cost to wider society. Fuck them. <laughs> I concur. Mm. <laughs> fuck them. Fuck them up their stupid asses. <laughs> you can fuck them. I don't can we just no, fuck them a... in, the, in the rhetorical sense? That was a quote from a movie or something. Yeah, one of your classy movies by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Bojo has gone. Um, mm. Jonathan Pye did a great video. Has he actually gone yet? Or is he in, is oh, it, well, it's, a, it's a long goodbye. Well, this is... Anything could happen in three months. Yeah, I yes, I'm, you know, he's still in there. He's still. going to run, he might run himself again for leader of the Conservative Party. Yeah, why not? Who would be, you know, is someone going to beat him? Can you beat a queen? <laughs> That's what we used to play say when we were playing shithead. Uh, no, I don't think he is. Um, 
was I going to say? Yeah, so he's he's officially resigned, but he's going to stay in post apparently till September or October when they elect, the Conservative Party elect a new leader. Mm. And uh, Jonathan Pye did a good video. I've just got a quick clip. Well, I'll say quick. So he's gone. He's fucked off then. He's resigned. OK, so he's resigned, but he hasn't fucked off. OK. I mean, what do we have to do? Wait, wait for another few months whilst he takes the wallpaper down. She's, I'm loving this. What an exit. The, the Prime Minister forgot that his whip was a sexual predator. No answer to that one. No answer, no humility, no meaningful apology. For days, just more Dickensian twaddle and a little reshuffle. Not so much reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, more reshuffling cat shit on a litter tray. No, and that is absolutely... This whole thing is, is, is total rhubarb. And the manner of his departure should tell you everything you need to know. No dignity, just desperation and delusion and a despotic disposal to cling to power, no matter the harm to our country. A Tory party facing the inevitable truth that they have been complicit in enabling one of the most dangerously incompetent and untrustworthy, selfish individuals ever to have occupied number 10 for as long as they have. And what's beautiful is it was the lying that got him in the end. He leaves in disgrace as well he should, having exposed himself once and for all for what we always knew him to be. Not a statesman, but a sad little liar. A Shakespearean tragedy written by monkeys on typewriters. A Prime Minister who is as adept at lying at the dispatch box as he is to his string of mistresses. Every marriage Boris has had has ended when he Fucked someone else and got them pregnant. Wild, isn't it? <coughs> I don't believe it's been on time. The Prime Minister tells the truth. I'm <laughs> <laughs> with Nadine Doris. Cock, she's staunch, isn't she? She's fucking, she's... She's fucking batshit as well, isn't she? <laughs> oh, me. Yeah, so Bojo is, you know, he's got to say to Raw. Ta-da, to fucking you! I'd like Let's to go. know what that Nadine Dory's background is, where she's come from, because she's, like, pretty incompetent in a, in a room full of incompetence. Nadine Dory's the Minister for Culture, Media, Digital and Sport. Culture, Media and Downloading Pitches onto your interweb. Down, downstreaming movies on the tennis pitch. <laughs> yeah. I think it was. <laughs> downstreaming. Yes, we've got good tennis pitches. Going to make the, the, the safest internet in the world in the UK? Mm, oh, gosh, yeah. That's still going to go through, I think. That online hot safety bill. Bad move, that. Who who are the runners and riders, do you think, for the uh, the next leader or next well, dear leader? Dishy Rishi, who obviously was thinking about it six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because uh, Rishi Sunak was the former chancellor under Bojo. And what did he do? Did he... Uh, Register a domain name. He registered his domain name that he's running. He's running his campaign from. Or you know, refers people to um, six months ago, basically, wasn't it? Now, did he do that, or did someone else with a bit of brains do that and then sell it him? Maybe. Yeah. I don't. don't Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we registering domains? Yeah, we should have done. Dishy Rishi four (laughs) p.m. Do you think he's got a chance? I mean, I think his opening gambit was uh, <laughs> he said he's going to fix the economy. 
that uh, has been ruined or something when he's been in charge of the economy for how long? Two years? No, not been that long, has it? Eight months? <sighs> right. So, something like that. Maybe he should put his hand in his pocket since he's married to one of the richest people in the world. Yeah, he should do. And one of the richest families in the world. She's a mega billionaire. Is she a mega billionaire? Her father, only because of the stake that she was given by her father in yeah. this media entity. Oh, is it media? I, I think so. Oh, right, I think okay. it's a media company. I, I might thought, be all I thought it was science for some reason. It's I'm like doubting, sciencey. I'm doubting myself now, but right, I okay. thought it was. But yeah, so because uh, uh, oh, there was all sorts of weird stuff. There's weird stuff going to come out about him because you know, like there was a visa situation. He'd applied for a visa in the US with his wife. Yeah, and he was registered there whilst he was chancellor, wasn't he? Yeah, he still had his green card. Well, the part of the deal with getting a green card is you pledge in to make the US yeah. your mm-hmm. full-time home. Yeah. So, yeah, there's weirdness there. I, I don't mean, know. I don't think he's he's got what it takes. And then who else is a Savage? Savage Javid. Yeah. Former health secretary. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how popular he is in the party. No. I mean, you know, he's He, he seems to have some principles. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Do you remember when he resigned from cabinet previously on a matter of principle? <clears throat> yeah. Now, if you're being super cynical, you could say maybe that was a tactical move. Mm. I don't, you know, mm. most the sort of more more megalomaniac politicians will do anything but resign, as we've seen this yeah. week. Who, so. else, who else are we? Uh, Jeremy Hunt's in it, isn't he? <laughs> Um, anyone, anyone but Jeremy Hunt. That he is the spawn of Satan. That will be seriously bad news if we get him. So there's him. I think there's like a random equalities kind of person for the party. Blah. No. What uh, about Pretty the Barbarian? Is she running for it? She hasn't thrown a hat in the ring yet. I think. I yeah. think you know she doesn't need any more spotlight on her because there'd be all kinds of terrifying stories would come out, wouldn't they? I bet. Do you not think? I just, I reminded myself of a previous clip we had of her, her grasp of numbers. I can report through the government's ongoing monitoring and testing programme that as of 9am today, there have been 300,034, 974,000 tests carried out across the UK, excluding Northern Ireland. That's number one. That's a number one there. I mean, what was she? Is she Home Secretary? Uh, Did she resign? Mm, Yes. Did she? Who didn't resign? Oh, I don't know. Only Nadine. Only Nadine. I think it's only Nadine who didn't resign. The Prime Minister tells the truth. Prime Minister tells the truth. (laughs) Um, What about Penny Mordaunt? She's thrown a hat in the ring uh, yesterday, I think. I don't know who she is. I know who she is. I think she's... Slight, low-key... Dark horse. Top top three. Dark horse. Everyone's been saying my MP, Ben Wallace, and he's ruled it out. He's ruled out running so far. He looks like he might explode, that guy. (laughs) Why? I don't know. He just looks like one of those people who's got, like, you know, like a large red head. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think he needs any more stress in his life. He might just go... Well, but is, is he, he's a former army man, is he? So's Penny. I think and, she's Navy. And or cadets or something. That's not real army. Scouts. <laughs> Girl and, guides. And 
He's defence minister, is he not? Yes. So maybe that's his dream job. Yes. And from the according to the press briefing, he talked it over with his family and decided it wasn't for him. No, because of the numerous affairs. <laughs> Allegedly. I'm sort of with him. I wouldn't want the job. No. <coughs> I wouldn't want that level of scrutiny. I mean, it changes your life forever. Think yeah. about security details and... Security... You know, I'm sure his family have a pretty normal life. Yes, I suppose. Nobody would really know who they are, would they? Because he has kids as well. I mean, yeah. that would be completely out the window. It's his yeah. front page. So I suppose the other thing as well is, you know, you can probably make loads of money backhanding, like, arms deals, can't you? How many billions go through... Uh, UK defence. Is it 30, 40 billion a year, the budget for defence? I have no idea. Something Sounds like that. right. Mm. Yeah, so he's ruled himself out. Um, Nadim, Nadim Zahawi. Oh, yeah, he's in it, isn't he? He's, he they've already, the, the mud slanging's already started with him, though, isn't it, I think? He started the week as health secretary, <laughs> then became Chancellor of the Injecta, Yeah. Ooh. and now he's, uh, he's going to run. Yeah. Uh, Is he still the Chancellor now? He got the job and then asked Boris to resign. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take the job, uh, but you've got to go. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder how popular he is. He uh, founded the ONS. He's behind the ONS, Office of National Statistics. Right, okay. Yeah, Mm, businessman. Immigrant, Mm. arrived in the country without... a refugee, I think. From Iraq, I think. Right, okay. Uh, Somewhere in the Near East. Mm. I think Iraq. It arrived without a word of English mm. and uh, is now Chancellor. Wow, so, you know, dreams do happen. Um, my fingers are crossed for golf, Michael Gove. Oh, please, no. That'll be great, can you imagine? <laughs> He's just the same. How much material we'd get. He's just, he'll be fucking, I think. Is he, is he, is he, is he <laughs> a coke fiend in number 10. Is he, is he running? No, I don't think so. No, because he's a raving alcoholic. <laughs> That's why, allegedly. <laughs> Okay. I'm telling you. I'm yeah. telling you he is some kind well, he is an addict. Um and and notorious shit. Yeah, he's awful, isn't he? Backstabber. He plays a lot of games. He's like he reminds me of Littlefinger <laughs> in Game of Thrones. And we all know what happened to him. Yeah, down the sky 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 hole. <laughs> the sky down, window. Damn the bum hole. What's it called? The, the trap in the floor in Game of Thrones, in the eerie. Someone in the in the chat, rescue us. Yeah, I think it was the sky hatch, something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Gove, God, God help us. Not Gove, not Hunt, anyone else. I'm, my money's on Mordaunt as a dark horse. I think she's well, got a chance. Well, <clears throat> Thingy came from nowhere, didn't he? Cameron, David Cameron. Came from nowhere. Well... Nobody knew him none in the of public. The, virtually none of these people come from nowhere. Well, I don't mean, I mean nowhere. I mean, like, you know, no, not in the public's um, yeah, public knowledge, knowledge. Where did Rishi come from? Um, Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan? can't remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sajid Javid, he came from... He was a banker, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah one of the two, either Sachs or Morgan. Mm. Uh, son of a bus driver. And he went back to work for them when he uh, resigned his cabinet post. Who? Um, Savage. Savage. <laughs> I bet he back. did. Yeah. Because imagine how much money he'd be making. Yeah. To sort of say, you know, grease the wheels. Mm. But I think that he, he, he might play on his working class roots. Yeah. 
Um, mm. Not that I guess that means anything in the Tory party, but he might say, well, it will mean something to the electorate. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so we'll find out in uh, a matter of months. <laughs> mm. Should we move on? Should we move on to some other news? Yeah, why not? Uh, Jacinda, Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. Um, she arrived in the UK last week. and um, Comrade Jacinda. Yeah, while Bojo was still in office and um, she was talking up the, the strong connections between the UK and, and New Zealand during this packed visit to London on Friday where she met Bojo and and uh, reflected on her OE working for former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Do you know what OE working is? It's what they call overseas experience. Right. Colloquially in New Zealand. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, it says, I was one of many, many New Zealanders who spent several years working in the UK as part of what we colloquially call an OE Ardern said, noting that the job she had before coming to London was for then Prime Minister Helen Clark, who is now a president of Chatham House. Heard of Chatham House rules. It rings a bell, but I can't... Chatham House is an international think tank. Yeah. Policy think tank. Ardern jokes that her job in the UK, working in the Cabinet Office, first under Tony Blair and later under Gordon Brown, was, for some in her family, the high point of her career. And she spoke at Chatham House while she was here. Yeah, so she worked for the former Prime Minister, Helen Clark, who is the current president of Chatham House. And uh, It's just another example of the revolving door, isn't it, of power? Mm, well, yeah. Um, it's like an echo chamber in some kinds of ways, that, isn't it? That you have a former, a former PM goes to think tank that then generates the ideas that influences the PM. And then that, that PM goes and then influences... It's just... It's almost like there's some sort of global network of these people who decide how our lives are run. Exactly. Yeah. Listeners, is there like some kind of weird global network out there? It, possibly with a leader that was like... <laughs> Vulcan Star Trek. Despotic-inspired attire. Um, Jacinda is obviously a, a World Economic Forum young global leader as well. No, yeah. that's a conspiracy. It's on their website, man. <laughs> Google it. It's on the website. She's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they only started sort of announcing them in like 97. But if you listen to Schwab's uh, speeches, he'll conf- he's confirmed uh, Putin was a young global leader. The good mate, big mates, Carlson yeah. Putin. Trudeau... Um, your man in France, Macron. Mm. Um, he loves the Dutch guy, Rutger, mm-hmm. the Dutch Prime Minister. Who, they're having real problems over yeah. there with the Dutch farmers. Yes. And, uh, yeah, because of the green agenda. Yeah, there's something about nitrogen, isn't it? Nitrogen. Nitrogen use. oxide. Having to cut it by 50%. What are they, going to, what are they supposed to do then? Like, Let them eat cake! Maintain the yield. Yeah, that's why they're out on the streets blockading. Well, so I mean, it's they're going to lose the land. They're going to lose the farms. I know. Yep, it's uh, it's it's so, not good. But then, but this is the other thing. If it's part of a green agenda, right, to reduce the amount of nitrous oxide, not nitrous oxide. That's what you put. Nitrogen out. oxide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's an unstable molecule which which dissipates quickly in the atmosphere. From what I understand, it doesn't contribute anything to. But so to anything. 
if you're going to reduce the yield on the farming that you do in your own country, that means obviously you're going to have to import more. Which what and how do you import stuff? You don't teleport it, do you? How does it get to you on a plane or on a you know a diesel burning or whatever it burns oil burning ship? Well, let them worry about that. As long as our ESG score is cool, our environmental social governance is fine. Nonsense. We'll let them worry about that. They'll have to sort it out on their end, <laughs> won't they? This isn't no. Yeah, it's it's fucked up. Um, <laughs> talking of uh, WEF global leaders, do you think uh, the global leaders meetings is where they teach billionaires how to avoid tax? Oh. The average billionaire tax rate in the U.S. is 3.4%. In comparison, the OECD average tax rate for a single worker is 34.6%. In the past decade, there have been multiple years where Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Michael Bloomberg, and many other billionaires paid a total of $0 in federal income taxes. When they- Zero. In Zero dollars, yes. Now, we all know this happens. Mm-hmm. It's only mugs who pay tax. <laughs> we are the mugs. What's even, what's even the best is when they take it out of your account before they even give it to you. Exactly. It's yeah. called pay-as-you-earn taxation, P-A-Y-E. Mm-hmm. They take their slice. You don't even have to give it them. They take mm-hmm. it before they even pay you it. I Talk know. about a method of controlling people. Yeah. But um, how did they do it? That's the question. That's what we're going to learn. Mm-hmm. They have a combined net worth of $539 billion. In 2011, when Jeff Bezos was worth about $18 billion, not only did he not pay any taxes, but he actually received a $4,000 tax credit. Don't- Jeff Bezos got a tax credit. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. We're the suckers. I know. Don't worry, though. It was for his kids. So how do billionaires avoid taxes? The easiest answer is that their wealth comes from the increase in value of their assets, like stocks and property, which is not considered a taxable income until they sell it. This is why you have a number of CEOs at companies like Facebook, Tesla, Apple, and Google who are in the $1 salary club. So while their wealth might have increased by a few billion dollars, they get to report an annual income of $1. How do you... How do you survive on a $1 income begs the question, doesn't it? Whoa, there must be some way around it. But how do you live a billionaire's lifestyle on a $1 salary? It's a strategy known as buy, borrow, and die, where a billionaire will go to the bank and ask for a loan using their assets as collateral and receive an interest rate of 1% to 3%. Because this is loaned money and not income, they pay no taxes on it. They rinse and repeat this cycle over and over again until they eventually, well, die. <laughs> and they can set up complicated trust funds so that their heirs receive their assets tax-free and start the cycle all over again. This doesn't even cover tax havens, shell companies, and the Pandora Papers. So if that interests you, I'd really appreciate it if you click the plus. Thank you. It's pretty simple in the end. Yeah, so basically <laughs> they, they pay 3% tax, don't they? Because it's the interest that they pay on the loan, essentially. Yeah. To live their life. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it all gets written, everything else gets written off. Yeah. So, yeah. In and fact, probably, you know, a lot of stuff they could class as expenses. Yeah. Don't they? Yeah. I'm sure they do. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they do. Why not? Yeah. Uh, none of this is against the law. No. You know, you got to change the laws. It's like I could have never understood why our tax code is so thick. Why is it so massive? Like our our laws regarding tax, it should be pretty simple. Mm. Doesn't need to be. You know, make it. If it's really simple, there's no loopholes, and maybe that's why it's complicated. Mm. You know, lobbying, mm-hmm. big money lobbies to uh, make it ever more complicated. Accountancy firms love that because it means it makes it harder for individuals like me mm. and you to do it ourselves, so we have to pay them to do it. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, these loopholes can be in and just be exploited by the people in the know. Mm-hmm. You can charge the big bucks mm-hmm. to the billionaires to, to make the saving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's legal. It's not, you know, it's probably not ethical. But, no. You know, I don't know. Um, anyway, um, you know, last week I had a bit of a rant about Just Stop Oil. No, you don't. You don't. You don't have rants. About that, that young lad who was, uh, he glued himself to... Uh, you were very crass, weren't you, talking about pussy? Yeah. Well, I was questioning his motives, wasn't I? Yeah. That he was, you know, using this Just Stop Oil thing as a way of mm-hmm. um, ingratiating himself with the female, the fairer sex. Yeah. Um, they've been at it again this week. Mm. Um, more Just Stop Oil protesters, the uh, two protesters glued themselves to the hay wane constable famous mm-hmm. constable masterpiece the hay wayne and i've got a video here and at the end of the video i think i can safely say i've been vindicated in my assertion God. there they are actually sticking onto the painting this time Must be quicker. Here comes the glue. My name is Evan. (laughs) My name? My name is Evan. They've they've improved, look, they've really improved their uh, logo and T-shirts, haven't they? Yeah. And uh, uh, we're going to hear some oratory. From Evan. My name is Evan. I'm 22 and I'm a supporter of Just Stop Oil, demanding an end to new licensing of oil and gas. I have younger siblings, the youngest just 10 and 12, and I refuse to stand by whilst they are voiceless and let them be sentenced to a future of suffering. Our government are failing their democratic mandate to protect us. But when there's no food, what use is art? When there's no water, what use is art? He's no Cicero, is he? <laughs> no. It's quite affected, I would say. Yeah. I have siblings of years 10 and years 12. <laughs> what future art thou in this world of oil? Evan Almighty, Tony says. <laughs> uh, My name is Evan. I'm 23. Mm. And when billions of people are in pain and suffering, what use then is art? We've stuck a reimagined version of the Hay Wayne that demonstrates our road to disaster. See what they've done. They've put a tarmac road there <laughs> and they've put a burnt out car. I mean, some airplanes. <laughs> That river, I mean, what use was that river anyway? So a road it probably makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. Quicker. It's yeah, quicker. It's quicker than a boat. Idiot. <laughs> it shows the destructive nature of our addiction. Why has he got a horse and cart on a road? Yeah. I'm going to say, it should be a Tesla or something. It should be like a huge gas-guzzling SUV, shouldn't it? And look in the background in this skyline here. Mm. We have the uh, It the looks future. like Preston. <laughs> the shit fucking 60s <laughs> <Sour> <laughs> office block and, <laughs> and there's talk of mill yeah 
Oh, oh, I can feel better about it now. Yeah. To oil. I first saw this painting when I was at school. It's an important part of our cultural history, our heritage. But it's not more important than the 3.5 billion people already in danger because of the climate crisis. It's not more important than the millions of people in this country. Oops. Uh, <laughs> Here comes the security guy, masked up, walkie-talkie in hand. Which country was it? They, they just ripped their hands off the floor. Italy. Was it Italy? It's Italy. Already suffering because of the cost of living and fuel crisis. And it <laughs> He just gives up. Uh, it's not more important than the lives of my siblings and every generation. Oh, it's a sweet moment coming up. Generation that we are condemning to an unlivable future. From history, we must learn. We must learn that in the face of suffering and injustice... Ooh, that's awkward. She let go, mm. and now he's grabbing... He's, he's doing, like, a, a pressure point yeah. grip on her fingers. What's going on there? Oh, he knows. Ordinary people can and must stand up and determine the future of humanity. Uh, here it comes. Here we go. Bit of tongue. Oh, it's better than that. Oh, that's it. So, uh, one girl, one, two, three, four, dude with a camera, five, (laughs) six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I wonder if they're kind of with him or is it just a random group why, of why school they, children why are they cheering like that i if, think they're supporters man well if they're teenagers which they look like then you know and they're on a school trip then perhaps you, you know you even at university age you're kind of you anything that goes against the system as we know you as you get older you get more right wing don't you so um in like 30 years these people will be advocating the death penalty so don't worry about it <laughs> I think I'm vindicated in questioning these guys' motives. Because it's all with that. (laughs) That This is why he's doing it. More pussy. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That we can see. More pussy. More pussy. More pussy. Three. More pussy. More pussy. Oh god. Five. I don't want to listen to more pussy. pussy. All right. Yeah. Probably. So, yeah, I think I'm vindicated on that score. Yeah. <laughs> Just talk amongst yourselves. Phil. Sorry, I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm... He's lost himself. Sorry. I should have been uh, quicker on the uptake. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. It's a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast fast valuable, please return some values. A myriad of ways of doing this, and my favourite, as ever, is word of mouth. Tell people, share links. So get this down your lugals if you like. If you like the Holy Grail, yeah, man. You know, legit Holy Grail stories. The Army's Inquisition is where it's at. Yeah. Um, I like it when people join the Discord and uh, share things with us, like guest suggestions or show artwork. 
got uh, no submissions this week, but we do have one that I did. Here it is, and come in, show artwork for episode 239. David Horror. Looks nice. Is that the... It's not the chalice there, is it, from Valencia? You didn't happen to do it, did you? Nope. Doesn't look I, like stone, that to me. I used that in the uh, YouTube thumb. Oh, good. Because I correctly predicted yes, that David... Did. David's number one candidate would be the David's Braille. number wang. Number wang. The number one candidate would be the, the Valencia chalice. Yeah. So that's on the... Yeah, no, that's just some rando. Some rando grail. It would be made of gold. They used to have, a, like, a, a pimped one at the church we went to. Oh, yeah. They don't have that one anymore. Like, do you remember the big Sold. gold one with, like, rubies in and stuff? I don't know. Yeah. It's like a plain one now. Yeah. Just, just plain gold rather than <laughs> encrusted with jewels. <laughs> So I got a picture of David there, got the chalice, got uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper at the bottom. Plain and simple. I had to knock it up pretty rapid today. Mm. I think that'll suffice. But yeah, we we encourage people to join the Discord and send us artwork for the show. If you uh, join the Discord server, you get an early warning on Monday saying Mm. who next week's guest is going to be. And then uh, that gives you a head up, heads up. So you can yeah. make some art. And you can ask questions. You can post questions in there as well, if you like, and we try and ask those. We don't really get that many questions, do we? Never. No one ever uses that, that functionality. No. There is a thread, specific thread for so, questions. you know, we can delete threads as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If they're underused. I mean, Christ. Yeah. Memory almost full <laughs> up here. <laughs> exactly. Like in the piss. Um... You can buy merch from the Amish loot chest. You could get a, a bacon nuts pint glass uh, or a 16 ounce cup. <laughs> I think they're called in America. Yeah, there's mugs, t shirts, get literally communist merch, hoodie, uh, current grape. Yeah. Official logo. It's all there. Stickers. Stickers. We get a cup. It's a fucking small cup. Yeah. But if you want to support us uh, in that way and get something tangible to keep. Yeah. That's a good way of doing it. If you're feeling ill or, you know, you're worried about uh, an exam coming up or you feel just generally that your chi is depleted, you can ask for a, a focus chi request. Again, an underused functionality within the Discord. Yeah, not had one for ages. You can have use that, send it through the Discord uh, channel or uh, email it as uh, the Armist Inquisition at gmail.com and we will focus our chi <coughs> together yeah. as a community. Into your, into your brain, directly into your pineal gland. <laughs> Maybe you do that, I'll just do it to the chi receptacle. Fuck you, Plotland's not going to save itself, you know. I think, it, no, that, no I, you're aiming for the pineal, I'm going to aim for the prostate in the men. And I'm, I'm definitely isolating that. <laughs> Time stamp that shit. That for the man... And I'm aiming for the prostate. <laughs> okay. And um, where can I aim for the women that's not weird? G-spot. The G-spot, okay. Oh, the, the heart chakra. Yeah, the, in the heart. That's nice, isn't it? I'll aim for Sorry, it was vulgar the first time. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah G-spot's a myth. I've never found it. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, leave us a, a review. We hardly get it. Well, we get hardly any reviews. <laughs> no, we don't. Not on iTunes. I mean, we only see iTunes. Do we? And, uh, yeah, I mean, going uh, like uh, it's only a small chunk of people who listen on the audio, mm. listen on, on Apple devices. But if you are on an Apple device, 
that would be nice if you, if you leave us a review. Or if you're on Spotify, give us the old five star. You can do that yeah. now. Um, Spotify. Unless you're in Bulgaria, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, slipped out top ten. Have we now? Yeah, we're like unlucky 13 now. All right, okay. We went down to three. I've been tracking it because I was excited. This is unusual to be top of a chart. Yeah. Down to three, back up to two. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, elevated down to hell now. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what it was. I know, it's, it's just bizarre. one person downloaded the entire <laughs> 240 episodes. Yeah. Maybe that's all it was. Some sick fuck. <laughs> we haven't heard from people who've gone back to the beginning recently either. No, we yeah. Have, we had this phenomenon of people going back to episode one. And yeah. Starting that maybe it's just too much of a, a, a Herculean effort after 240. I mean, it's like Pikachu, tiny screwdrivers and something else, number one, What's isn't it? it? <laughs> Pikachu, oh Christ, I've not heard from her for a long time. <laughs> a few years. Oh, she's all right. But yeah, yeah, we haven't heard from that. Um, what else can you do? Um, birthday shout-outs? Yeah. If you got a birthday, we'll say happy birthday to you. Send, you can, oh, send us news articles, obviously. Oh, yeah. So, Discord again. There's threads for news articles and videos and whatnot. Mm. Something that you find interesting. We were getting them through today, and it was like like the, uh, Lee sent something from the farmers about the uh, Sky News right. piece on the on the Dutch farmers. And <laughs> it's been quite quiet, that hasn't it? Fucking Sri Lanka, they've burnt down Prime Minister's house. I think. No. Yeah. Oh, well, the fucking starving. <laughs> no, yeah. It's failed state. <laughs> yeah. Um, farmers' protests look to be spreading to Italy, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Spain. Maybe this will make them change the, it. Then oh. change the sort of. The green thing. I don't know. Let's hope so, because it's, mm. it's getting hairy. It's like this is, the, well, some would say that this is part of the, part the, plan. Of the plan. But yeah. What do I know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, these are all ways that you become a producer, basically. You help us produce the content for, for the show, whether it's guest suggestions and questions or news articles and assets that we can talk about. Um, but, you know, there's only one way to become a real producer. And that would be tossing us a fucking coin. Toss a coin to Absolutely. Do it for the lads. 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 Now, because oh, we're northern and we're bloody miserable and the weather's fucking shit. Do it. Do it. If you go to uh, thearmistinquisition.com or Patreon. Oh, there's Patreon. You can buy us a coffee. All the links are in the show notes, as always. And uh, you can give us a one-off donation, sign up for a monthly recurring sustaining donation. Um, donations at a level of £50 or over will grant you the rank, the status, the cachet. social standing. Cachet. You normally say. Degree. Yeah. Uh, I've been an executive producer for that episode, which looks great on your curriculum vitae, your LinkedIn. Yeah. Put it on LinkedIn. Link yeah. with us on LinkedIn. Yeah, Amazon author page. Yeah. All you fuckers out there can save Plotland and keep the shit show going. Mm. Right, so I think it's time. It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. Let's thank the producers for episode 239. We have... Lost it. <laughs> Kelly, Kellyanna, Steve, Lee, Helen, Nick, Slicko and uh, Bunyanot. Thanks. You're so amazing. They are... Yeah. So amazing in their love and mm. build that banner. Literally. The best. Oh, I'm literally a communist. 
the dwarf, the carrots, the grape, the homophobe, the winds, the asthma, the corpop, the number 11, the blind man, the fallen on the horizon, the cripple, and the mother of the bickering from hell. We are Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. Thanks for your support for another week. We all appreciate it. And uh, I've just got some funny things to finish on. Have you? Yeah. Do you like to see these? Are one of my favourite things ever on telly, and it's uh, it's always on live news channels. Okay. And it's a phenomenon known as the lazy anchor. What does that mean? Well, watch and find out. Of details. We know a number of cabinet ministers have gone into number 10. Mr. One of them was Nadine Doris, who <laughs> oh, came dear. out just a few minutes ago. A of details. We know a number of cabinet ministers have gone into number 10. One of them was Nadine <laughs> Doris, who <laughs> came out just a few minutes ago. A of details. Yeah, showing the BBC in the chaos that ensued. Ensued? Ensued? How much? How ensued? Ensued. Ensued? Hard word to say that. Ensued. Ensued. En This week, yeah, I like those moments. Um, this is another BBC moment, and this is uh, the economics editor at the Independent. Um, getting her words mixed up, talking about um, potential tax cuts that Rishi Sunak or whichever potential next prime minister might be offering to us set to reach 11% later this year. But tax cuts are a possibility now, do you think? Well, there'll be tax cunt cuts to mitigate. Tax cunts? There'll be tax cunt cuts. Ooh. <laughs> there'll be tax cunt cuts. Cunt! Tax cunts. Yeah. It's catching. This is from BBC Radio 5 Live. It's the economy where, as Rishi Zunak believes in what you would call sound money, he wants to make sure that any tax cunts are tax... It's the economy, whereas Rishi Zunak believes in what you would call sound money. He wants to make sure that any tax cunts are tax... <laughs> that was Lewis Goodall, I think, who's uh, works for Newsnight, political editor maybe, at Newsnight. By the sounds of it, I've got a, a, an ear for journalists. Yeah, you do, don't you? Yeah, tax cunts everywhere. Maybe he had the original tax cunts <laughs> on his mind and then he uh, said it himself. Tony says it's like dropping the grail. I don't think it's that bad. Can you imagine how mortified... Well, he died, didn't he, that priest? <laughs> he died priest on the spot. Right, you're coming to heaven now. <laughs> he martyred himself. You're done. You're done here. Do you think... Um, well, assuming that the grail... I'm assuming that the grail has some sort of um, paranormal powers. Do you think they are, are ruined? Do you mean... <laughs> Dependent man. Sounds like a dependent man for pets. Do you think that that's ruined when it's just glued back together with Gorilla Glue? <laughs> with PVA. PVA, yeah. Probably. I imagine, I imagine all the magic leaks out when it's smashed to smithereens on the Valencian cobbles. Yeah. I mean, do you think they just used a bit of Bostic? I don't know what day it was done. He said about 40 or 50 years ago, didn't he? Oh, right. Maybe in the 80s. 70s, 80s. The 80s, you wouldn't have been too bad, maybe. Yeah. 
Sticks like shit. <laughs> no nails. Do you imagine? <laughs> do you imagine the guy going around going, "Don't drop it. I have one thing to do. Just don't drop it. Don't drop it. Don't." Drop oh, it. I'm falling. <laughs> well, this the other thing is, is maybe he had he had a heart attack, and that's why he dropped it. Not that he dropped it and then had a heart attack. Maybe it was like, as he was carrying it, like going all Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and then he said, oh, God, I'm going. And I've got to drop it. I have to drop the chalice. Get your ass to Valencia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The protesters know all about glue. Did he? I don't get it. Oh, yeah. He's like, like the fingertips. Oh, yeah. myself. I mean, the other thing as well is, you know... I just pull their hands off like yeah. the ties do. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking... That's what the, the Italians... Can you not say that anymore? I don't know. You don't, <laughs> if you don't know, then it's probably all right. Oh, right. It's okay. not like I called him the like, other it's one. It's just like being in a tiny hot room with my nan. God, it has got hot in here, hasn't it? It's body heat. This room doesn't get hot when it's a million degrees because there's no natural light. There's no way for the sun to yeah. pierce yeah. inside the sanct- sanctorum, sanct- sancti sanctorum. Yeah. But it's this body heat. It's well insulated. Ambient temperature. You know, it's like the equipment's melting. <laughs> yeah. Because we're on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We, we, that was a bit tangential. We went a bit tangential then, didn't we? No, never. God. Let's uh, let's do some Biden. Biden had a, a Ron Burgundy moment this week. Did he? Have you seen? No. You know what they say about Ron Burgundy in the film? What did he say about him? He'll read anything you put on the oh, teleprompter. Yeah. He'll read anything. So uh, this happened this week. Power. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Oh, no. End of quote. I've got to watch Kamala's face now because she was laughing last time. She stoned. She stoned this time. Right. Stony face. Sorry. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Um, this isn't this isn't the end. Uh, the, it's, it gets better after the end of, end of quote. And who registered to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Repeat the line. And he doesn't repeat the line. He just says, repeat the line. <laughs> and then, oh, it gets better. Who registered to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and/or political or, or maybe precise not and/or or political power. That's another way of saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. Wow. Power. Women who registered to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. And the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political or or and or or political power. That's another way of saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. I've not watched the guy in the back. Let me watch yeah, the guy in the back. Right. Power. It is noteworthy. Repeat the line. <laughs> that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not... 
not without electro. Oh, he's stopping. He's, he's, yeah. he's stopping there, isn't he? He's, he's, yeah. he's shut his mouth. Then yeah. he's crushing it. Mm. Pamela's uh, Pamela is out of it. And or political or, or maybe precisely not and or or political power. That's another saying. The you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. Yeah, you, the the you, the women of America. Yeah, he's, he hasn't got a fucking clue, has he? What's How going many on? more years has he got? Two, isn't it? Got mid, midterms. Mid- is, he two, is he two? Is he been in around two years now? Midterms in November. Jeez. So that's the midterms. He can't run again, surely. Oh, he can't. It must be a court. It'll be a corpse. Just like wheeling out a corpse soon. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Don't be like that. Well, I mean, or as good as a corpse, I mean, is probably what I mean. I got hairy legs. You know what I mean? Because a cor- a corpse he's just with like, hairy legs. He's, he's just, yeah, he's just incoherent. Why don't they get a corn pop to run? And corn pop was a bad dude. Because he was a bad dude. Oh, sorry. Hey, oh, come on, man. Come on, man. I mean... I, I mean, is he going to hold the polluters accountable? It's also holds polluters, I'll call polluters accountable. With the most ambitious environmental justice agenda ever. That's when the teeth come out, isn't it? <laughs> I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international suffered depression. Truer than I suffered depression? Truer than... I don't know. If it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> That little old person voice creak, that crack is beautiful. We've all heard that. Orange Band's coming back, isn't he? Of course he is. Yeah, I think DeSantis is going to leave it this time. He's young. He's a young guy. He'll, he'll, he'll weigh it out. Mm. I think, maybe, what do I know about American politics? He's nearly 80, isn't he, Trump? Yeah. Seems more coherent. Like Fucking hell, that's saying something, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he actually <laughs> can read a teleprompter. I suppose. Do you know what I mean? It is what it is. Is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. That's why it is. That's why it is. Mm. I just, I just hope he saves more desks. Risk more cases, more desks, deaths. Deaths. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> does. <laughs> Does he have any bits where he doesn't, like, make a gaffe? I'm sure that he does. He must do, must he? He must be coherent. Like, when the medicine's, like, really making him coherent. He just seems like a gaffe machine. Mm. You know, he should be fishing. Yeah. Charlie, Charlie said it. Uh, Charlie Robinson said it on here, didn't he? That, that's, like, two years ago. That yeah. guy should be fishing somewhere. Yeah. He shouldn't be the... Can you imagine the fucking pressure of that job? Yeah. And not sleeping and all the rest of it. Yikes. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Kids say the damnedest things, don't they? My goodness. My goodness. Fuck's sake. <laughs> oh my god! That wasn't even planned. But I got it on camera. Oh my god. My goodness. My goodness. Fuck's sake. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? She just happened to catch the glorious moment on film. Yeah. Your kids swear. 
Occasionally. Uh, not if they want, don't want to see the back of my hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hit your kids. Yeah, I've caught them. I'm really good. I don't swear in front of the kids, ever. I do all the time. Do you? Because, because yeah, I'm quite an angry person. Do you not do you not use different words? I try to. Um, Fudging but... sugar butties. <laughs> yeah, basically. Quite a lot of the time, uh, I mean, they're, <coughs> they're, they are in another room or they're engrossed by the iPad. So, you know, that doesn't count. But they have said numerous swear words. I don't think the younger one has said... I can't remember the younger one. It's, it's the six-year-old that says the more swears. Don't say. I think he said... I think we were walking to nursery to get his brother one day and he said something along the lines of, fucking hell. And then he was really shocked when I told him off. He's like, shit. Well, the mummy says it all the time. He shit his pants, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm sure both my kids have said... Yeah, and he says... It's a common common vernacular in our house. He has said... Um, <coughs> why why adult, why can grown-ups swear and children can't? I said, fucking shut up. <laughs> no, so I just... I, I don't know how to explain that one. Just because sometimes you need to swear in order to express yourself, but it's considered vulgar for a child to swear... Now, don't swear. I just what does I vulgar said mean? So. <laughs> yeah. Tony says, my kids used to point out the obvious in shop queue. Oh, yeah. What's that mean? I don't get it. He stinks. Ugh. <sighs> what's that in his face? Oh, my God. What's wrong with his leg? Why is that man limping? Why is he in? That? Why is his leg swollen? Those kinds of things. Wow, I've never had that. Mm. Wow. Oh well, um, I'm pretty sure fat boobs, <laughs> um, etc. <laughs> um, uh, I think there's been incidents in toilet cubicles with my wife. Like you know, why have you got a nappy in your knickers, mummy? Stuff like that, basically. Can you tell? Right, got you. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, I just can't wait till they get to 17 and kick them out. <laughs> 17? Not even 18? Oh, yeah, go on then. 18 as well. Like, you know, I'm going to let them finish their uh, formal education before they take the first step on the triumvirate. <laughs> the curse of sonorum. The curse of sonorum, sorry, yeah. Mixed <laughs> up between the, the, the three three guys, Pompey and the other one, and the other one, Crassus. Caesar. Uh, and Caesar, yeah. Yeah. First triumvirate. Who was the uh, second triumvirate? Oh. Augustus, Antony, and uh, the other dude. Is it Ly- Ly- Licinius? Forget. He was the older one, wasn't he? We- the old Duffy, he yeah. They soon, they soon dispatched him. Yeah, I don't think he went to go and live on a farm, didn't he? Yeah, that's what they told him all. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit yeah. like our old dog. Yeah. <laughs> went to go and live on a farm. Yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, I think we've we've done enough, haven't we? I think so. Yeah. I think that about covers it. Yeah. Um, happy holidays. I've got to say happy holidays. It was 4th of July last week. Oh, yeah. yeah. Happy holidays, you know. Got a holiday message here from AJ, the man himself, Alex Jones, InfoWars. I declare this July 4th, 2022, to be a declaration of independence against the alien force 
on this planet today waging war against humans and our biology and our very future that is attempting to exterminate the majority of us and force the uh, minority that's left to merge with AI computers and become cyborg slaves of Satan. Hallelujah. I mean, I don't think a, a truer word has ever been said. No. Pray Shabalan. And all the Elohim. Epstein didn't kill himself. His lane won't Maxwell herself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sign off for this week, then. Yeah. We'll be back next week with another great podcast. Obviously. Obviously. Well, hope you're entertained. Are you not entertained? See you next week. Yeah, send us money. <laughs> I have to say, it's hard right now. Yeah, I know about inflation and stuff, but... Yeah. Robin Hood of podcasts. Yeah, just, you know, obviously, inflation, take the inflation into account and then send us what's left over. Yeah, and uh, we'll love you for it. Yeah. I love you. And don't, you know, don't make sure you don't have any savings. And just give us all your money. Yeah. Uh, gold. Send us gold. Yeah, actually, probably, yeah, at tangible assets is probably better, isn't it? Yeah. Books. Yeah. Send us books. I like books. Yeah, we've had a couple of books, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Right, thanks for watching. Thank you for watching. See you next week. Yeah. Ta-ra! Ta-ra to fucking you! Building back better. You know what? You're a real wanker. Booty teacher, Uh Toss. Toss elizu, mum. Build back better. Uh, toss elizu, mab. Mmm. Build back better. Mmm. Mm. Mm. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. Boris Johnson, more on far coffee camp. The Prime Minister tells the truth.